This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hi, and good everything, Nubians, wherever you are in the world. We are here. We are live. Uh, episode 136. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but uh, good morning. Hi. Hi Dr. Good, good everything, as you were saying, Professor Hunter. How are you? I am. Yes, I'm he, I am. As I am. Gregory would say, whatever comes after that, you attributed it to God. So I am awesome. I am awesome. The great I am. I saw uh, our brother Christian has, they have a, a collected Dick Gregory quotes. Have you talked to him yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the show this week. Okay. We had a you know amazing conversation as always. I love that man. Yeah, um, Christian is a good brother, yeah. just a good spirit. Well, all the all the family, but Christian is you know that was his father's man. Yeah. Now we we dived in. You know, of course, talked about Lil Lillian. You know, oh, of course. Dedicated to, and then he's actually working on a project just devoted to his mother. Excellent. You know, which I I mean this and Tracy Sherrod again struck again this is you know yet another one of her projects but it goes through the mind the body you know it's it's Dick Gregory through all of all of his elements and mm. and I was thinking about a couple of things first of all how how do you find your body every day are you present in your body every day you know as I'm doing more meditation I don't want to get too woo woo but I'm like you know I don't spend enough time contemplating my physical you know, and sometimes we could neglect because it's a whole thing that we are. We're a whole thing. Like I spend a lot of time in the spirit. I spend a lot of time in my mind. I don't spend a lot of time in my body. And I, I want to fix that. I need the balance. I'm listening. <laughs> you know, we, we live in our bodies, right? And when we're, so we're here all the time. But like you said, we're not present much of the time. I know I'm not. Um, and when we are present, it just unlocks so much more. So as I rip and run, I'm like, mm, you know, your your mind and your spirit ain't gonna take you but so far. You, you gotta make sure that this vessel that you're in is 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 right and tight. You know, I was uh there's uh and, and a lot of us play, you know, we play tiddlywinks with our body, you know. We we'll uh, <laughs> we'll take a tonic, you know, we'll drink some vinegar, <laughs> we'll right. Echinacea or something. I am pepper or something. Yeah, we'll do something when okay. things, you know, but we don't keep it in homeostasis or not to, you know. So I'm like, I have to do a better job of a ritual that keeps, you know. So I was talking to Dr. Sinyadi yesterday, is what brought it up. And uh, because so many Nubians have made this like there's a trip now, like some Nubians came from Texas, they go to the museum, they go to Sankofa, and then they go to Calabash. <laughs> you know, it's like the holy trinity of Nubian. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I was, I, she sent me a video and I was like smiling because, you know, to imagine a space that just takes on a life form of its own and people connecting this. She said the two people that were there didn't know each other and then they discovered they were Nubians. Like, and, and it's like family, you know, hugging. And I mean, it's just like it's so beautiful what's happening. So the institution permeates and that's the whole goal. Yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't always get tickets to the Smithsonian. But you can always go to Sankofa and you can always go to Calabash. And that's uh yeah, I mean, and it is a healing, both of them, but you know, Calabash in particular, just a healing space. When when you walk in and the first thing they ask you is how can we heal you today? It's, yeah. uh, and so yeah, I mean, are we present in our bodies? Not unless we're intentional 
in this last week of wrestling with this cold, first thing I wanted to make sure it wasn't COVID because everybody out here in these streets with no masks on. And of course, now we know, I'm sure, you know, you've been listening to the same news I have, you know, the flu is back and resurgent because that mask wasn't just stopping COVID. It was stopping all that other nasty stuff. Yeah, I had um, Dr. Christy Purnell on. We had a. Oh, yeah, of course. She was with us as Healthy, Healthy, Wealthy Wise. And she just got ousted from the university hospital because I guess she's too black, you know, too. She cares too much about about people. But y'all hired her to do that, right? And then they passed the moment when they thought that we were going to tear up the whole world. The farther we get from the summer of 2020, the more these folks going to try to wrestle to take their take their power back. But uh, we got to stop that. But yeah. okay. So this week I had Kimberly Bryant who got ousted from the company that she started, Black Girls Code. Yes. After she raised $14 million, uh, they were like, okay. And then, of course, you know, they use sisters to, you know, do anything. Of course, you can't you can't send somebody to look like you. Shout out to Herschel Walker, the illiterate uh, football player who uh, showed it a whole world that it don't matter who you are. They just yeah, they, they they'll find somebody to do it. Look just like us. Yeah, so you know, it was her Christy Purnell who literally is the reason why I got vaccinated because I'm like, I ain't trying to do that. I ain't trying to do that. Tuskegee, blah blah blah. In my mind, you know, I'm smart. You know, I read, I read, but I was like, mm, I don't trust this. I don't trust it. I don't trust it. And she was like, chick. And then she walked me through it because she was in the in the trials. And I was like, are you sure? Because I don't want, she was like, so I was like, okay, all right, all right. And so, you know, she's been one of those warriors out there on the front lines of this thing because, you know, we are unfortunately disproportionately in spaces where we are more susceptible, Black people in particular. That's and so, doing. you know, we have to, that's why I'm like, be present in our bodies, not just you know, keeping ourselves alkaline and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but, you know, the, God gave us all of the tools. we got to use all the tools. That's and, good. yeah, we are up against supernatural uh, viruses that have never been here before, that have mutated into things that, you know, uh, echinacea, golden seal, and sea um, moss just ain't going to just, you know, you know, so. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and it, they normally would have a lot different effect but these are things as you say particularly viruses and we talked about that in the throes of it you know yeah the, the yeah. viruses come when human beings push into nature and nature pushes back so these are combinations and recombinations that were never meant to persist yeah. and coupled with this environment we got bad water bad air like wherever we live in in this country you know mm-hmm. uh, like I live in a, in New Jersey and there was like a warning in Montclair. Now you think Montclair, but Steve Colbert lives in Montclair, you know. <laughs> I'm like, Montclair got bad water? Like, don't use the water. I was like, Montclair? Yeah. What? Yes. So yeah. it's yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's so. everywhere and, and has been everywhere. And uh, as long as the corporations make their money, then and enough of us don't stop them. It will persist. That takes us back to the 60s. Was it Tom Lehrer, the uh, comedian uh, who had that little novelty song, Pollution? Pollution, pollution. He said, what is it? You can try the latest toothpaste and out of your tap comes industrial waste. (laughs) In other words, we've been, this ain't no new thing. Right. It's no new thing, but there are fewer and fewer hiding places, which of course means that the places where you think you can hide become much more uh, 
inaccessible, the gated communities. But then you got a little problem of public works because everybody has the same pipes. So whether it be Jackson, Mississippi, where the white nationalists have surrounded the city of Jackson and now they're out in Hines County and they got their own private uh, pipes and private. They got a water tower in the city of Jackson for the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Jackson State is a state of Mississippi institution. They don't have their own uh, system and water tower. So they think ultimately they'll just let us die. So unless we do something, we will die. But as you say, uh, sometimes you can't escape the fact that we are all uh, connected and certainly we're all on the same ball. So again, for the, uh, the, uh, the, the challenge, the mentally challenged uh, gubernatorial uh, senator candidate, Senate, Senate candidate in Georgia, who seems to think that somehow air is not connected anymore and the bad air goes, good air goes to China. Well, uh, dog, uh, oh, I love that uh, meme. Did you did you make that man deputy dog? Because he put that badge out last night. <laughs> See, these kids don't know deputy dog. <laughs> you took a take a sip, no question. But I'm saying, dude, we all on the same ball. So <laughs> the air gonna get us all, brother. First of all, um, this is the one time those uh, cable news outlets missed an opportunity because Herschel Walker is not a Georgia phenomenon. He's a national, maybe even international. One of them, y'all got bad ratings anyway. You should have put the like I had to go on the internet to watch the debates. Like I'm right like right now, Chris Cuomo has a job. I didn't even know the guy was back. What is this bootleg cable channel he owned or something? I was like, what? <laughs> they sure missed the opportunity for sure. I was like, turn it, turn. I was like, I CNN. I know y'all, y'all ain't got a million people watching right now. Come on now, what what is up, y'all? Really, just what y'all putting on? Okay, internet. And it was, it didn't disappoint, you know, and people are like giving Herschel Walker credit for actually not being as incoherent as he normally is because he actually prepped, but he's still subject verb agreements. That's not, you know, just words jumbled together and then the badge. We speak fluent abonics. That ain't the issue. No, no. It was, it was the, the, what was he saying? I don't. Right. Yeah. So, but it was, it was comedy gold. Comedians should be having a lot of fun with this, but it would be funny if maybe a million people were going to show up to vote for him. Oh, they're going to vote for him because they don't care. I mean, the guy's a signing pin and this is, this is where we go off the rails in part. We know that we think that these elections are about the individual candidate, about character, about truth, but it's about power. There could, there could literally be a cartoon dog running against Raphael Warnock. And them same million people are going to show up and vote for the cartoon dog because they want to control everything. They they don't even care about themselves. Again, this isn't even about, you know, talk about abortion. And he changed his position last night, apparently. Well, he don't know what he said. This morning he'll get up and say he didn't show up last night. And he'll say it was a lie. It really doesn't matter what he says. But, I mean, is it about a woman's right to choose? No, it's about a woman and a human. It's about a human being's right to be human. Talk about our bodies. Do females, a female, per, a, a human being who can conceive and bear a child, have the right not to be pregnant? Not according to these people. You don't have a right not to be pregnant. We have the right to, to control your body. So when people make that comparison between uh, the anti-abortion laws and enslavement. As far as control of bodies go, they are not the same, but they're in the same category. Mm. It's about controlling bodies. And these people are about controlling bodies. They want to send some bodies to work 
so they can profit. They want to send other bodies to jail so they can profit. They want to send other bodies to the sex trade so they can have their jollies. And then if somebody get pregnant, they want to uh, control that body. Now, when the child comes out, they want to control that little body too. They want to send it to the orphanage or the street so they can repeat the cycle, jail or low employment. And these, these people are beneath contempt. They're <laughs> beneath contempt. When you say, when you say these people, because I, I had this exercise today, uh, yesterday with my class, you know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, what box do you check? You know, because I have, you know, Hunter College is one of the most diverse schools that I've ever seen, like in terms mm -hmm. of coming from different, I have Filipinos, Malaysians, you know, it's like everybody's in the class. Absolutely. What box do you check? Dominican, Colombian, mm -hmm. what box do you check and why? And one young lady who I know speaks Spanish, she said, I, I had to ask someone that question because I'm not white, you know, I'm too dark to be white, but like, you know, and so she's like, I don't know. I said, but ask your question, ask this question, why? And Latino shows up, I think in 1970, Hispanic shows up in 1980. What were you before 1970? Ooh. You spoke Spanish. You only had really two choices, right? So I know a lot of people were instructed if they spoke Spanish to check white. So okay. then what does that mean? If you're not, you know, so I'm like, is the problem race and racism or is it power? And if they're putting you in these categories, what for? They say resources, right? But as you mentioned, you turn on a spigot, the water could be bad wherever you are. Your garbage gets picked up or, you know, that's right. What are the what are the what are the real reasons why this thing? And I said white doesn't have it. So I have a, a young lady who's Indian, and she says, "Well, I check Asian, but there's a drop down for Indian." I said, "Is there a drop down in white for Polish, Irish, German, Italian? Is there wow. a drop down? No, there's not a drop down. So it's just white. So what if you're all of these other things? Why don't you get to? So it doesn't matter if you're. Mm, mm. So anyway, I had this question. <laughs> I had this question uh, that on the air, I was like, you know, we're talking about voting election cycle. You know, we've had everyone on from Chris Jones, who's running for governor of Arkansas, to Charles Booker a couple of weeks ago, to, you know, we've of course had Gary Chambers on and like everybody that's running for something. I've had them on at some point. Um, I'm just the only person I haven't had on recently is Val Deming. But everybody else who's black who's running has been through Come the show. On. Come and on. I'm like, okay, you know, vote, 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 vote. I haven't had Stacey Abrams on recently. And I'm like, okay, you can lead a horse to water. I'm like, I'm getting exhausted, you know, because at some point you can't make people do things. You can't make people have sanity, read, no stuff. You know, it's like you can't make them. I said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And then I had a caller call up and said, my daddy was a cowboy. And I said, of course. Because black people were the original cowboys, so no, all the John Wayne stuff is like ridiculous. The information he said, "Well, my daddy taught me you you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink, but you can give the horse salt. Give the horse salt, and he's gonna come." And Absolutely. I was like, "Hmm, Absolutely." So, what, Doctor Carr? Here's my question: hmm. Is the equivalent of us feeding people salt? Oh, we're past that. We may get another salt taste in a minute, but the the salt was the lash. We've never been as politically unified as when we were resisting enslavement in large and small ways and coming. That's why Reconstruction period, you know, uh, we can talk about those racist uh, 
slave owners or owners, we call them slave owners. They thought we were slaves. We were not. Shout out to ADOS and FBA. I am, I'm never getting tired of hammering at that. You, I mean, you're going you're gonna, you're either going to get rid of that slave mentality or you're going to suffer. But, uh, you know, we, the 1850s and 60s really, to me, should be where we spend a lot of time in school curricula. We certainly spent a lot of time there because that was the political solidarity that was caused by the salt of the lash. We were trying to get out of that. And then during Reconstruction, these are people who had experienced the lash. So when you see black self-determination, these folk have a very clear, experientially grounded sense of the alternative. So, so hope is fed by, we ain't never going back there. And the farther we get from the lash, the, the, the more diverse our opinions come as we are fully integrated into a political economy where the individual is the chief highest way of knowing, the highest value, the harder it is. Now, there are moments when that salt reappears. Certainly what, as we read when we read Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro, the, the, the sequel to slavery, as Woodson calls it in the Miseducation of the Negro, what we would call apartheid or Jim Crow, Jane Crow, as uh, you think about Polly Murray. Yeah, that was salt. So we fought that. But having gotten past that, as Du Bois tells those school teachers at Johnson C. Smith in 1960, once these laws change, you have to face the issue of race and color. But guess what? That's the water that can free you if you ground culturally and move together. But you don't have salt anymore. So calls for political solidarity. You know, I just uh, remember when we read um, the interview Claudia Tate did with Tony K. Bambara. Tony K. She interviews her in the early 80s. And she said, what about the 60s and the 70s? She said, in the 60s, we had the political statements. We had the solidarity movements. We were pushing. Everybody wasn't there, but we had these critical masses. And then in the 70s, this kind of uh, kind of turn in kind of began to emerge. Let's think about ourselves. How do we get ourselves together? All oh, that's very important. She said, but we're in the 80s now and they coming back hard. Now, we look, we look backward in time and we say, you know, she was right. And she was calling it in the 80s. In the 80s, of course, this is Reagan and them, you know, the global kind of Thatcherism. All that stuff is a pushback. But guess what? Increasingly, we are increasingly fractured because the laws have changed. What Du Bois said, that salt isn't there. Now, there are moments when the salt reappears. It, perhaps it's a George Floyd or a Sandra Bland. Perhaps it's a Trayvon Martin. Perhaps, you know, that. and then what do we do? We gesture back toward the salt like Emmett Till. This is like a lynching. Okay, yeah. And then there's a moment, which is why in the summer of 2020, after, uh, after they kick in the door, and kill that child in Louisville and shoot that brother in Atlanta, or shoot that guy, brother in Atlanta, and then kill that brother in Minneapolis. It's like, we're in the street. Uh-oh, the salt, the injection of salt for a moment. And these people got scared as hell because global salt is beginning to be distributed in the form of radical inequality and, and all these attacks on the poor. And you now you're encroaching on the places where you had put them in these Bantu stands because you want that land. And that are going to be water wars and their resource wars. And so they got scared. But guess what? The taste of salt seems to be receding in our, our mouths again, because here we are. Things right. are back open. And, so and, think, yeah. And for anybody that's like, oh, why is Dr. Carr ADOS? Because any distraction, right? When I had Ellie Mastal and Ali Velshi on at the same time. And we, <laughs> You're just out here convening serious conversations. You know Seven and days a week at this point. <laughs> next week, Ali's coming on to break down the Federal Reserve. And I cannot wait because what we need to understand is the economic, the global economic 
movements that are happening that are playing marionette with us to keep yes. us at odds with one another Absolutely. if we don't eat that salt and get thirsty enough to understand it don't matter foundational not foundational we all gonna drink that dirty water when they say so when they get the power that they want if we continue to let the gerrymandering and we don't oh my vote don't matter we keep letting uncle luke and killer mike and all of these subversive people i don't know what they're motivated by but it's not us getting free because freedom looks like just for a moment, let's just, I disagree with you on a lot of things. I mean, I even like you. Maybe I can't even stand you. Right. But we all got to get over here and we can only do that together. So all this other stuff is a distraction. Hi, Kanye, Candice and them. It's all a distraction so that we argue with each other, whether it's Charleston White and T. I like whatever y'all are doing out there. It is keeping us, and they know, and they're sitting back and laughing because they don't have to do anything. But throw well, a little I mean, bit, they, you know, flavoring the salt. Yes. Now it's him. Now it's pink Himalayan salt. Now it's sea salt. In other words, the salt ain't yeah, right. Right. You know, what I'm saying? little dash of salt, and, and, and then we think, well, this ain't salt. So no, I mean, I, you know, I don't. I'm not. I don't attack this. I, I don't attack any human being. I think, you know, and as a descendant of someone who was enslaved. I absolutely understand that pain. I understand it. We feel it. We understand it. We share it. What this is about is solidarity politics. So the, the central problem with the turn inward is citizenship. Oh, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I want, before we get to that, though, I mean, I want to, the question of grouping people around identities. I love how you raise that with your students at Hunter because the census is another tool through which these countries, these country polities, these state systems we call countries, manage the populations in, inside them. And in many ways, states are just placeholders for economic power That's because, right. you know, corporations are transnational. They don't they're no respecter of state boundaries. Those laws are for you and me if we choose. And so there, there's a new book. Band do that let me be clear i was uh, you know larry daniel favors big 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 uh proponent of pushing filling out the census i think we should fill out the census but i was telling everyone check black no matter no. what every if everybody just check black because it, that's the trick bag right that's the trick bag white don't have a drop down y'all figure that damn thing out that's the everybody trick bag. Check black i don't care if you speak spanish if you speak arabic whatever you speak wall off whatever you speak check black just check, check be looking for the other and looking for him because I want to be. This is the game. This Let's is the game. To win. Damn. And, see, and that, well, see, that's the thing. We have to know it's the game, as you say, because and that's why I mentioned Dan Book just wrote a book called Democracy's Data, the hidden stories in the U.S. Census and how to read them. Dan Book. Um, very interesting. Wait, wait, you just happened to have that book there. Yeah, I just got it maybe about a month ago. So I've been reading a little bit of it as I'm reading around. He uh, <laughs> talking about it. You just happen to have that book there. Well, I mean, yeah, people think it's magic. No, this is look, this is what we do. This is our this is our life. In other words, you know, like I told you, I mean, we, we talk about that. You were talking about, you know, we have to be present in our bodies. We have to, you know, Asa Hilliard was famous for napping. That's what his son Hakeem always talking. You know, said, you know, people say, When do you sleep? He said, I nap. And this last week put me on my behind. And thank you all for I me. Mean, Yada can't sent the stuff I've got. You know, I'm sitting here drinking now, you know, drinking my tea, trying to continue and getting healing now. So it was very strange for me to spend consecutive hours just 
on my back sleep because <laughs> even then it's like i gotta get away but but the whole point is that you know i learned that from my teachers that's how they were so when you know see do i haven't had a book yeah because you know i was born i'm gonna leave this body at some point and in between we got a job to do and fortunately you know human beings are constantly learning so I was fortunate enough to come back this time around to be around people, beginning with my mother and father, for whom intellectual work was the center of their existence. No matter what my daddy did every day, and he worked every day of his life, no matter what my mom did, she taught every day of their life. I'm, I saw them as a child. The intellectual work was important. Letters and numbers, and then learn to read, and then let's get this work, and your job is school. And then, you know, I mean, so all of those things that our people teach our people, which is why anybody talking about Black people don't value education, immediately it's like, oh, well, say some more. Well, you know, when we look at the statistics, we can understand that. Right. I don't hear you no more because you have just disqualified yourself to say anything else about my people because I know better than that. And so I was just fortunate enough to be in that situation. So, yeah, of course, I had the book here. I mean, it's my job. Right. So but what, what book is talking about, what Dr. Book is talking about here hold, is hold it up uh, one more time. Let's hold it up. Uh, Democracy's data, the hidden stories in the U.S. census and how to read them. Dan Book. He is very interesting. And of course, you would expect folk like Ruha Benjamin, of course, you know, uh, um, endorse it. Folks that you talk to, talk with and they have conversations with. But he's making, he's using the 1940 census. No, he goes back in time to talk about how they construct the census, the choices they made, and then reading the 1940 census and disaggregating it by race, by class, by region, by profession, by job. You can see how the government set up and sets up the U.S. government in this particular case, sets up this census in order to translate into resource distribution, political education, everything you can mention. In fact, just to give you a sense, he says he uses a series of data points to paint bigger pictures about the systems that govern us, such as the unchecked influence of white supremacy the place of queer people within straight systems and the struggle of ordinary people to be seen by the state as they see themselves. There's the issue. How do we see ourselves? Now, I am not a slave. I am not the descendant of slaves. But then technically, I'm not an African either. You know, I'm not a Nashvillian. You see, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Howardite. I'm not a Tennessee state tiger. I'm not anything except for the identities I've been socialized into owning and then how I project those identities into the world. So when we developed our Africana studies conceptual categories uh, in order to create a framework for doing Africana studies instead of just doing the study of blacks, which is a completely different thing. Shout out to Daudi Azibo, who many years ago in the first issue, in fact, of the Afrocentric Scholar, which is the which was the house journal of the National Council for Black Studies, he published an article entitled, you know, Black Studies are the Study of Blacks. We're not interested in the study of blacks. See, that's demography, the study of blacks. That's slicing and dicing by titles and names by people. And they, in this case, include government officials, the, uh, the lobbying forces to which they are beholden, and those who control resources or access to resources, who have a vested interest in maintaining a culture, not even a cultural, a, an economic hierarchy that can use culture, that can use identity to reinforce that hierarchy. And so, you know, when we start talking about the study of something, 
we're often talking about a system that has vested interests that remain, try to remain to the degree possible, invisible, who want to then have you come into that system based on identities, based on ways you see yourself that are curated from without yourself. That's why we had to have a social structure category be our first category in our Africana studies framework, because we have been so programmed to see ourselves in these atomistic individualized kind of small groupings by a system that absolutely doesn't see itself that way, that the first question we have to ask ourselves when undertaking an Africana studies approach to study is who are we in the moment we're studying to other people? Well, who are we to the census? We are black, we are uh, Latino, we are Native American, we are other. And then it's like, well, you got a drop down category. Okay, is everybody in the drop down? In, in fact, why we got all these drop down categories? Because you can slice and dice. What if everybody put black? Now you got a problem. You're not black. Oh, wait. Oh, no, no, I'm not playing by your rules. These are two different things. You're not black. How you gonna tell me I'm not black? I own black. The Indian population that had been transplanted to South Africa, whether it be Cape Malay uh, in uh, Cape Town or go over to Joburg, folk who had come in from the Indian subcontinent, many of them in the 1970s when the Black Consciousness move Movement appeared, took on, you know, read folk like Steve Biko, they took on the political appellation of Black. We are Black. Because right. you created a tripartite system in South Africa, white colored and Black, white colored and African, Bantu, African, so that you could, and the irony, of course, Bantu mean people, literally, in the Bantu languages. But again, labels given from without, labels like Yoruba, labels like uh, Akan, labels like Igbo. These are not labels that the people who spoke those languages gave. Those are language. Those are labels that the Europeans came in and labeled you by the language you speak. And now we got beef. But we'll get to that in a minute. We talk about the woman king a little bit and shout out to office hours. That was an incredibly intense two hours of conversation on Monday night, as it always is. But us being able to collectively walk through that work was really transformative in many ways. I'm going to share a little bit of that today. Not much because we continue that work on, on Monday nights. And, you know, as the numbers continue to increase, you know, about a thousand and a third consistently now coming into the space, you know, and growing. It's just, you know, it, it really, you just got to experience it to be in there. Uh, but at any rate, so those are all labels. So when you overflow the labels like they did in South Africa with the Black Consciousness Movement, when you overflow the labels, you're creating a problem for a system that relies on those labels to, to move you around. The latest one, of course, we saw what happened in, uh, in Los Angeles with the, in fact, um, let me go to the paper today. Today's New York Times. Again, shout out to Herschel Walker, uh, Deputy Dog, as you have uh, renamed him, <laughs> Professor Hunter. Uh, shout out to him for illustrating that it doesn't matter the color of your skin. He's black. Why are you? But now, see, there y'all go. That label don't mean nothing when you've got a white supremacist agenda that can recruit people who look like you to serve it. It's not a problem. Herschel Walker is running for the office of signing pen. They don't care if that man, I mean, for that, for that man could become the, the equivalent of Woodrow Wilson. The last year he was in the White House when his wife, Edith, was running the country, according to most historians. You don't ever see him. Why? Because he didn't have a stroke. He and there can't talk. She the one with the, with the other people who were closest to. But Herschel Walker ain't got to do nothing except sign here, boy. Doggone, D-A-W-G, Georgia doggone. 
front page of the paper tells y'all that today, New York Times, you see all them little red dots? Those are, pe those are people in the White Nationalist Party right now running for office who uh, have denied that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. The gray dots are the area places where white nationalist candidates are running, which have not denied it. See, do you see ain't but a few gray dots and most of them in California, maybe a few in South Texas and a few in South Florida, and that's just because they haven't said it out loud? These people don't care about truth. It's about power. And so I, I said all that. I'm just, I just thought about, I thought about that because it's on the front page. But the article I really want to turn to speaks to this question of identity, the census, and it uses as the point of entry the uh, the debacle that has been going on in uh, in California. Uh, come on, son. It was today's paper, wasn't it? It wasn't yesterday's. But here we go. Furrer in Los Angeles. Fear unmasks a caste system among Latinos. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and let's take our time with this, Professor Hunter, because really the heart of today, I want to spend with a sister whose name is not raised enough. She made transition uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, they had her ritual of initiation into eternity, her funeral in Chicago, uh, Monday before last. And... Uh, uh, Ethel Minor. Some of y'all may know that name. Keep that name in your head because it's all going to tie in together. And everybody knows this who is with us in community on Saturdays. You know we don't plan it except the ancestors plan it. So it's going to seem to you like, oh, y'all damn sure rehearse this. No. We're 136 now and getting stronger. Don't you look? <laughs> anyway. Uh, Fear unmasks a caste system among Latinos. This is Miriam Jordan writing in today's New York Times. Front page, Los Angeles, or Los Angeles, as they would say. Yvonne Vasquez arrived in Los Angeles in 1996, a teenager who had crossed the border to find work and improve the lot of his family in Mexico. As a newbie washing dishes in restaurants, the young man from the majority indigenous state of Oaxaca, often called, was often called Oaxaquita, or Little Oaxacan, by other Mexicans because of his deep tan skin and diminutive stature. Okay, let me pause there just for a second. Awaka, I don't know, Prof, have you ever been to Awaka? No, I have not. Yeah, me neither. I would love to go. It's in Southwest Mexico. And it's uh, apparently a, a great tourist destination. They say it's, oh, the, the beaches are beautiful, pristine. That means you ain't invaded it yet. Because y'all good for messing up. And, and Mex Mexico had a good deal of Africans uh, land there. No problem. I'm not if my reading is that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh uh, what's my man's name? Uh Yanga. Yanga is probably one of the most famous Maroons in Mexico. Uh Haile Garima has spent so much time in Mexico because he's working on this. He's at this point, he's in the 20-something year of this huge documentary on the Maroons. And so he spends a lot of he's, he and his people have spent a lot of time in Brackettville, Texas. They've spent a lot of time between Brackettville and then going into Mexico. Uh, what's the name of the city? He gonna kill me because I know this. Every time I go over there, he's working on the footage. Um, it'll come to me in a minute if I get quiet. It'll come to me in longer, shorter than that. Y'all give me five seconds. Crackerville, Texas, and uh, it'll come to me anyway. The point is that you see the Afro Mexicans on both sides of the border. In fact, he's got footage where he was talking to now the, of course, vice president of Colombia, when she came to one of the Afro gatherings 
on the Texas side of the border because she was working, of course, for Afro-Colombians in uh, uh, Marquez, Vice President, now Vice President Marquez in Colombia. This is this is this is international solidarity. So, yes, many Afro-Mexicans. Sure. That's absolutely right. Now, um, Waka is on the other side. I was looking for uh, a book that we were talking about Monday night on uh, in office hours. And I know I'm not going to look for it more than about three more seconds because I know I probably put it in another bag. I've been reading it. It's um, it, it's written by a scholar who is looking at the initial Spanish invasion and all the different types of indigenous people who were in, of course, the hemisphere and how they interacted with particular emphasis on the Yucatan Peninsula, which is, of course, mostly Mexico. But let, let me continue. He says, uh, so we're talking about Ivan Vasquez. Right? So Vasquez comes, they call him Little um, Awakin or Awakita because he is, is he Latino? Yeah. Is he Latinx? Yeah, he is. He's indigenous. See, Latinx just tell you the language. Latino just tells you the language. It don't tell you the culture. What some people will call the ethnicity, but I kind of shy around away from ethnicity for a reason I'll talk about in a second. And we're going to bring another sister in in a second to help us think through this. Another sister who, um, if you hadn't had a conversation with her, Prof, I'm sure you'll be having one with her soon. She's probably been real busy because of what happened in LA last week. But um, let's go back to our brother, Yvonne Vasquez. Still, okay, Adas FBI, that ain't my brother. And there's the political problem. So everybody be quiet and just listen. All right. Still, he eventually rose to become regional manager at Baja Fresh. That's one of them companies. And opened his own restaurant in 2013, a celebration of his native state's unique cuisine. Remember, Owaka is majority indigenous. So these are the people who've been there for thousands of years says, powered by Mole and Mezcal, the restaurant Madre, Madre, that's mother, right? The restaurant Madre has won rave reviews from food critics and grown to three locations in a city that embraces multiculturalism, Los Angeles. So Mr. Vasquez, now 41, was shocked this week to hear disparaging remarks about Owakins from Nuri Martinez, a powerful Latina politician who was president of the city council. Pause. All these American Negroes who are after Nuri Martinez, who resigned from city council because she called black children monkeys. Absolutely correct. But she butchered the walking too. I thought they were all Latino. That's just the language, fool. Now, do you look? Let me stop. Let me stop because I say I'm not going to attack people because I don't want. I mean, this is this, you know what that was? That was a little frustration because we got to be smarter than this. John Henry Clark used to always say, don't get mad, get smart. Do you understand? This woman speaks Spanish. OK, her people come from Central America. All right. Well, guess what? Yvonne Vasquez, that surname and his first name are colonizer names like Greg Carr, except the people that colonized my ancestors in the car plantation, probably Scotch-Irish or English, Vasquez was Spanish. So I'm an Anglo, they Latino. I'm black, they indigenous. 
These are labels imposed from without for a social structure that has a vested interest in perpetuating those labels so they can continue to, to, to manipulate folk. And who is the they? The they are the people who benefit. Baja Fresh was benefiting from him when he was busting his ass. Then he started three, his own restaurant, self-determination. Okay, you, you think who you think he's employing? <laughs> okay, now, now this lady, Vasquez, Chair Vasquez, former city council Chair Vasquez, she happens to speak Spanish. Well, guess what? Her ancestors from Spain and Central America. Where Vasquez ancestors from? Central America. Central America? Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. Oaxaca. Okay, America. Let America be America again. America never was America to me. Langston Hughes, love you, brother. You named for John Mercer Langston. How can I not love you? But this America you talking about, is that America Vespucci? Let America be America again. What, we going back to Italy? Come on, bro. These labels contain our imagination. When we overflow the labels, we expand our imaginations. What my friend and brother, Robin Kelly, who I'm corresponding with last uh, this week because you know I'm reading his new edition of his uh, Freedom Dreams, the revised and expanded editions. We read this 20 years ago. I was telling him, I said, you know, remember, Robin, we, um, we read this book when it first came out, the first edition of Freedom Schools. I picked it for our Freedom School students. And Robin couldn't make it to the closing ceremony after the summer we read it. We usually invite the author if they're living. But Sonia Sanchez came down. I was reminded we were talking about the fact that uh, that was so that was like I told you all a couple of weeks ago. That's when Sonia Sanchez had come and told told us all that uh, that's when Shani Baraka had been killed. And, and Robin was like, "Yeah, I remember that well." He said, "Well, let me know. You know, if you want to bring together some people and and and, and do this book." Do this new edition. I'd love to to come. So I'm, we, we're gonna figure out something like that. Maybe we will do it in Nubia because you know Rhyme's a good brother, been long time freedom fighter on, on on the dream. But my point is that when he's as he's writing in this book, and as we've been talking about all the time, political organization requires successful solidarity politics requires us to overflow these boundaries these people have put up to keep us pinned in. So um, Vasquez got a colonizer name, and guess what? So does Martinez. But that's what binds that identity together. This Latinx identity is the salt of the lash, the salt of colonialism, the salt of settler colonialism. And guess what? Let's continue. Mr. Vasquez, as I said, now 41, was shocked this week to hear disparaging remarks about Watkins from Nuri Martinez, a powerful Latina position, a politician who was president of the city council. So we worried about the fact she called black people monkeys and should be. But are you worried about the Awakens that she uh, defecated on to? Well, we got to worry about them. We got to worry about us. Okay, they're going to them people, the descendants of American slavery, who then gone all in on this fool-ass category called citizen. Citizen. A recording of a closed-door meeting in 2021 in which Ms. Martinez was heard referring to... Awakens as a lot of little short dark people who are so ugly. Now, is that enough to push the people of African descent in this country toward the Awakens and enough to push the Awakens toward the people of African descent in this country to form a solidarity politics? Is that are those insults enough to drive us together? Is that enough salt? Probably not. Let's continue was published over the weekend by the Los Angeles Times, creating a firestorm that is yet to subside in the country's second largest city. 
And what the LA Times, what the stake the LA Times got in it? Because, you know, journalism, Professor, come back for a second. I just want to be clear, because I maybe I need to ask you this, you know. It, what is the objective of the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, I mean, the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, the Indianapolis Star? I mean, they're looking for truth, right? Journalism is about truth. Help me. Why the LA Times? You got to print the story, but okay, walk us through this. Why are they starting to this story? No, they're not. Are they looking for truth or are they, uh, mm, who are they a propaganda propaganda arm for power, right? So when you think about Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post or Mort Zuckerman buying the New York Daily News or Rupert Murdoch buying the New York Post and several other outlets, when you think about the power structure in this country, U.S. News and World Report, Mort Zuckerman, billionaires purchasing news outlets, you ask the question, right? Um, Because I sat on the editorial board of the New York Daily News and I was told directly, this is the voice of the publisher, the owner of the paper. So I was like, so the other part's not his voice? The other part is not just this, just this, the editorial board, just this is his voice. The rest of the paper, he has nothing to do with nothing. Or as he brings in an illiterate British tabloid editor in chief who doesn't read, what's the point? You know, so you're asking a question, but I think, you know, I go back to Charles Lowe every time now, and thank you for the reference, because that's my due north. My goodness. Lowe was able to come on now bring a truth that the New York Times refused to bring, did they not have the capability to do what Charles Loeb? Maybe they didn't, but I know they didn't care to put the truth out about what we were dropping on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. I know they didn't care about the truth because their job was to perpetuate a narrative that America, it was an American narrative, right? Yes. Fomented in this power, uh, power tool and the use you know, if you read Ed Bernays' propaganda, you understand. This is a book that I, you know, highly recommend. It's one I rec- I um, require of all my journalism students because you start to understand everything. So I tell them, question everything. Just because we went through this, this Kanye, J.P. Morgan story, which is mm-hmm. because I'm like, every single body is sourced in Candace Owens. Is she a credible source? Is she the source? The New York Times. I mean, the, so it was the post. And I was like, what? Well, the post put it out. I said, what post? Page six. What is page six? Come on. Now. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, it was the New York Times. What New York Times? The newsletter page. Is that the Times or is that the news? Like, we have to be discerning enough to be able to suss through it. And what's the source of every story? Well, oh, it's Candace Owens. Second graph. Candace Owens. Twitter page is the source of a story about a major <laughs> bank canceling the, the, and I said, it may be a true story, but I don't see anywhere J.P. Morgan Chase confirmed it. Adidas put out a letter, right? When they had their riff, they put out a statement. Yes. Where's J.P. Morgan's Ooh. statement? Yes. And when does a bank ever say, dear yay? <laughs> Come on now. Just Come on. Ask, like, dear yay? Like, y'all are familiar. And no signature at the bottom. So if it was a personal kind of thing, there would be a signature. Right. That letter that Candace Owens put out. And I got Adobe Pro. I can manipulate any PDF. <laughs> okay. So I'm just like, even I said, even that, like you repeated something and shared it like it was gospel fact without that? even saying, well, it, well, the AP, AP put it out. This is how far afield we are in terms of like having no journalism anymore. When no, Reuters no. and AP repeat a story that hasn't been verified by the actual 
headline, which is JP Morgan Chase, uh, you know, canceled Kanye's uh, bank account. Like, where, where, where's the verification? So you asking me a question, I, I have to say, I don't know what the purpose is of journalism anymore. I don't know. Yes, what. yes you do, because you do it. And as and, you said, I'm glad with Charles Lowe. And again, y'all, you know, we're at 156 in this space. 130. Well, 130. I'm, I'm claiming it ahead. Okay. Like, we're at 136 before, but, but I mean, we're now talking about hundreds of hours of conversation, detailed conversation going through. So if you didn't, if you haven't, if you didn't catch the Charles Lowe reference, you got to go into the archive. You got to come on over here this other side and did because, like you said, I mean, the, the Cleveland Column Post, the Amsterdam News, and and there weren't not that there weren't tensions. The Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, you know, Norfolk Journal, Girl and Jive, the that Baltimore and DC Afro American, you name it. Though the Atlanta Daily, the Daily World, you name it. Those papers, you know, we again with the salt in our mouths, we were pursuing truth, but we were pursuing truth as part of a political agenda. And we talked about this extensively. So when you mentioned Charles Lowe, that just, you know, this brother said, okay, I see what y'all running, but I got to go dig this out. And I got a science background and we won't go over there. Y'all go look up Charles Lowe or better yet, go look through the archive for our conversation on him. Because again, we're just getting started. But we can go back now and all of the conversations we had, all of these are moving toward uh, are part of a momentum of memory, and that momentum of memory, memory will, 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 trans, will free us. Now, I don't know whether J.P. Morgan, as you say, I'm glad you did that because we are ever able to figure out whether Morgan canceled his no, account. No, there, there is not. And only one story. I think it was BBC had this one line: uh, J.P. Morgan, dec- no, J.P. Morgan did not comment. Right. But in the next sentence, we reached out to Kanye West people, and they. Did you reach out to JP Morgan and they declined, or did you just didn't find any verification at JP Morgan? So you put that line in to cover your ass. But I'm like, this is stunning to me that there's yeah. nobody picked up the phone. Like, this is a, a publicly traded major bank. J- Jamie Dimon's out there, and then there's like all these. Well, he this this predates the anti. So, first, the first story said it was because of the anti Semitic comments. Uh huh. But this letter, the date on it predated if it's a <laughs> the comments. So I'm like, well, what is happening? Is there no more? Are there no editors out there? Because my editor would have handed me my ass. Did you get verification? We can't run this without verification. I have, you know, one of my most uh, painful moments uh, working in journalism is I had this massive story that I had done all this work on and I failed to call the source of it because I didn't want him to dispute anything that was in there because I had all of the facts. (laughs) And my editor was like, did you call the principal? I was like, no, I did not. I don't want him to. This is this story's airtight. I got all of my. He was like, Mm-mm, "That no, you, we will not run this unless you make sure that you at least get. And if he doesn't comment, then you have to put that in as well. But you cannot run this story without the, verifying the source of the story. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I was like, okay, ah, and I knew it too. But I was like, I don't want him telling me I'm wrong because <laughs> you know, I did my homework. Hey, they, now it's celebrity. It's loud about celebrities and everybody has access. So these papers are chasing. They go. Is it well? No, let me not say because um, how can I? I shouldn't say. Anything. I should ask you. Does it feel like that these quote unquote flagship publications, so to speak, uh, in the social structure, are chasing the lowest common denominator? They're I chasing, mean, 
know they're chasing the algorithms for the ad dollars. All all newspapers and and tele, television uh, outlets make their money off of ads, right? So it's the algorithms and the clicks. And right now you're not getting the ratings and you're not selling the papers. So the only way that you can actually verify or justify getting this amount of money for this 30 second or 60 second ad or this ad, this full page or half page ad is by your social media engagement. So if you have, you know, everybody can go into their analytics and then if you could produce several million or whatever, now you can charge X, Y, Z dollars for that ad in your, you know, or the thing that's scrolling that pisses us off that we got to click out of and why is this ad here? But yeah, no, that's how they make their money. And they don't make their money on anything other than that right now. So if everybody's running a Kanye story that we can't verify, we got to run that thing because people are going to click on it because that's the headline and it has Kanye in it. And then there's a boycott called and we, we got to get in on that too. So yeah, we are in a very, very dangerous uh, place in society, period. You see China, you know, China, China, there's some stuff going on in China we can't even know about right now because they are sanitizing everything. And, and America's no different. We just... We just put a different face on it. No, there's no Gestapo coming in, tearing down signs and erasing people's thing. Not yet. Not yet. But we got about maybe what, about a month before the whole thing flips. We got about a month, like you said, which is why you keep on that wall. People say, I ain't voting tangibles. Okay. You are weaponizing ignorance and we're not going to get into argument with you. Ignore those people. If you can't ignore them, then body them very quickly with facts and keep going because uh, this ain't about whether you like Joe Biden or don't like it or whether Herschel, he black. No, that's all confusion. So with all due respect to entertainers like Killer Mike, with all due respect to entertainers like Candace Owens and and, uh, and Kanye West. But wait, look, she's not, a, she's a PR rep. And yeah, I had and the, and the entertainment. She's a PR rep. I, I had to ask my students, what's the difference between public relations and journalism? Ooh. She's a PR rep. She's a PR. What's the job of a PR rep? What is the job of a public relations person? What is their job? Let's go. Let's go. She's, she's not an entertainer as much as she is a shaper of, of um, views, right? That's what PR. PR is, to, you know, you, whoever's hiring you, whoever's paying you, your job is to make them look good. Right. Your job is to shape their narrative. Your job is to to, you know, foment a story to, you know, shape the ideology that someone is paying you to do. That's what PR people do. Damn. Journalists are supposed to, you know, cover facts and disseminate truth. Uh, it's blurry right now, but no, 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 that's helpful. I mean, that's the, that's very clarifying. So she's doing her job. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she's doing her job see this is what i'm talking about see this is y'all this is how we this is how we work to get understanding you can't get understanding if you don't have some basic grounding in what is going on that clears it up i mean that clears it up that makes it so clear once that once that once that emerges then you're like okay so i know not to trust anything you say or or do or don't but i know that your motivation isn't the truth yeah, isn't facts. You're doing what your client wants you to do. So she doesn't work for anybody. Don't y'all stop looking at social media for your information. Use it for whatever tool you can use it for. But yeah, I mean, if if JP Morgan, uh, if you're gonna we're gonna go to social media and start talking about Kanye and to, to your observation in terms of distraction, this I guess nobody, very few people who are gonna do that will not will not go to page 10 of the Financial Times today <laughs> with a headline, but Joshua Franklin writing out of New York. 
JP Morgan Chase reported a 17% year-on-year drop in quarterly net income, a smaller decline than analysts had expected as record income from lending helped offset the continued slowdown in investment banking and a $1.5 billion provision to cover bad credit. The headline is, J.P. Morgan profits fall 17% after $1.5 billion provision for bad loans. I guess people looking on Twitter and Instagram and arguing about Kanye and, and quoting Candace as the only ain't going to read the Financial Times to see what J.P. Morgan is really talking about. Jamie Dimon is quoted in there as well. Everybody, nothing to see here. While the International Money Fund was just here in D.C. clogging up traffic as usual and meeting and everybody's panicked around the world. You see, uh, Oz was laughing about it on social media that uh, uh, the white girl trust threw the brother uh, Quartang under the bus. <laughs> trust sacks Quartang and bid to save premiership. She might not be the prime minister of uh, of England when we get together for one thirty-seven in seven days. But uh, the point is that there is a global recession that is roiling. These people are terrified. There's another article in here where Harvard is saying with their $51 billion endowment that we're getting ready to take some hits now because there's structural adjustments that may, be, may take place in the, way, in the wake of this, uh, this contraction of the global economy are going to have real consequences. Well, how is that? People say, well, how, uh, you know, tangibles. I ain't voting. Oh, okay, fool. When your, uh, the price of everything you eat goes up by another 25% or do you really think voting for the white nationalists is going to help you? Because the people who they uh, answer when these people call, the people who own them are the people who are in these rooms talking about recession. So they're going to balance their budgets. They're going to continue their profits on your back. And you're going to march out like the fool you are and go vote for the people they put in place with your vote to mess your money up even more. But, you know, neither here nor there because our brother has um, started his restaurants. We're going back to the New York Times article. We ain't really re really left. Yvonne Vasquez got his three restaurants. He was heartbroken when he heard this lady who speaks Spanish refer to his people as a, a lot of little, short, dark people who are so ugly. Why? Because this is the game you play as you're climbing the ladder to have access to systems that allow you as an individual to profit if you will just leave the rest of them people alone. Anti-solidarity politics. So we're going to tie all this together in a second. So we, we're actually beginning to tie it together. Let's let the narrative continue to unfold. Says Ms. Martinez, this is the, the lady who was the city council chair who's resigned, Ms. Martinez, who also made derogatory comments about Black people, resigned from the council on Wednesday. There's the part Black people concerned about. But you should be concerned about those Awakens too. You should be concerned about humanity. And from our cultural grounding, build solidarity politics with other people who are suffering, other people who are oppressed, to overflow the boundaries that have been set up, these false boundaries by people who have a vested interest in keeping those boundaries up. We continue. Two other Hispanic council members who were heard in the meeting in which they discussed ways to enhance Latino political power are facing a cascade of calls to give up their seats as well. They were discussing ways to enhance Latino power. Well, why they jump on the Awakens? Ain't they Latinos? No, what they understand is that it's differences between Latinos leading me to the sister who I hope you talk to soon. Uh, Professor Tanya Cateri Hernandez, herself uh, from Puerto Rican descent. This is her book, Racial Innocence, 
Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias and the Struggle for Equality. She's a professor at Fordham, actually. Here she is, Professor uh, Martinez, Her, Hernandez, rather. Hernandez, I'm, right, I'm reading about her, um, Martinez. She talks about how color, how color and culture disaggregate once you get inside the label called Latino. And she says Latino instead of Latinx, because she said, my abuela will understand Latino. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying those other labels aren't great, but she does make the point that only a tiny percentage of people who speak Spanish uh, call it, uh, identify with the term Latinx, and most of the people ain't even heard that term. Again, coming up with new terms. I ain't got no problem. I'm an academic. I know the small curated pet shop known as Academia, where well-groomed pets bark at each other in strange tongues in order to stay in the pet store. I understand that. But she talking about the real world. You know what I'm saying? The run where the black Puerto Ricans, the black Cubans, the black Dominicans, once you get inside the language and get inside the culture, you realize, oh, there's a race thing going on here. Absolutely. And she walks through that thing in every category of life, employment. She's got a whole chapter in here called um, Oye Negro, you can't live here. Latino landlords in action in Florida and California saying you can't live here. But guess what? Now these Afro-Latinos, do you have a legal action? This is a law professor. Do you have a legal action when you go in and say you have violated the Fair Housing Act in 1968? It's Spanish on Spanish. It's almost like in Title VII employment law when light skin versus dark skin plays out in Atlanta. Who are you going to file a racial claim against? In other words, this race thing is insidious. Is Barbara Fields and her sister call it racecraft. This thing just got, it takes its shape it needs to take in order to reinforce itself in the hierarchy. Well, but, but what Professor Hernandez does is walk us through all these various uh, uh, areas, the so-called criminal justice system, brown versus black dynamic. She talks about the employment and then learning how to move through these white Latino spaces. White Latinos, they're white Latinos. Yeah, Professor Hunter started with that. The census. Why every article you read say something about non-Hispanic white numbers over, okay, why? Because there's Hispanic whites? Don't be dumb. When Roberto Clemente came here and went to Pittsburgh, he found out real quick, I'm proud Puerto Rican. Yeah, you black Puerto Rican. And you, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, Manny Sanguin, Al Oliver, all them cats, y'all black, negro. In fact, I love the opening quote she has in the book here. She say, let me see if I can find it quick. Uh, yeah. What is Latino anti-blackness? She starts with this quote. She says, Jose Luis Villazon, Afro-Latino, gives this quote. He's an educator. He says, even before I understood the word N-word, nigger, I heard negro in Spanish. And remember what Malcolm said, that debate where the brother was like, stop calling me black. I'm a negro. He says, okay for me to call you black in Spanish, but not in English. In other words, race operating in this thing. But anyway, Professor Hernandez, racial innocence, unmasking Latino anti-black bias and the struggle for equality. It just came out not too long ago, maybe about a, a month and a half, two months ago. So let's go back to our brother here. So what I'm saying is that they want to call these three Latinos talking about increasing Latino political power, except there ain't no such thing as Latino political power. Like, there ain't no such thing as Anglo political power. There's a difference between race and ethnicity. Professor Hernandez says, uh, when you start talking about ethnicity, you're talking about common culture, common language. I agree with that in terms, but I don't like to use the word ethnicity. And this goes back to my days when I was working full-time for the School District of Philadelphia back in the late 90s, when we used to have these uh, 
inclusion conferences. You know, the 90s was the period of the African-centered curriculum movement in public education. Also, the multicultural movement was really at its peak in terms of, of, of K-12 education. And so they would have these multicultural conferences, these inclusion conferences, and the, and the things now that have morphed into now diversity, equity, inclusion talk, right? So we're in the meetings and they would be like, okay, we got, we got a track for race. We got a track for gender. We got a class. So we got a track for ethnicity, but we don't really know what to do with that. Now, in a place like Philadelphia, of course, and I hope the Phillies, you know, I don't have a horse in it, but, you know, I can't even imagine cheering for a team that moved out of downtown Atlanta so they can go north of Atlanta to have a lily white crowd doing a tomahawk chalk. So I hope that the Phillies, and I ain't no Phillies fan now, you know, the only horse I got in the current Major League Baseball playoffs is Johnny B. Baker. I hope Dusty Baker gets a ring finally because y'all going to lead one of the greatest managerial minds in the history of professional or amateur baseball alone. Y'all leave Dusty Baker alone. Hope him and the Houston Astros get a, get a ring. But at any rate, the Phillies are playing the Braves. And when you go to South Philly where they got the baseball stadium, you're looking at a lily white crowd out there. And so I, and when I'm in these meetings in the school district, I'm thinking when y'all say ethnicity, you must mean white ethnics. Because, you know, Philadelphia is full of white ethnics, Irish, Italians, you know. So well, no, we don't, we don't even know what we mean. So we have a conversation. So we're in a meeting, these administrators. So who's going to take responsibility for giving the kind of opening address for these workshop panels? We got race. We got, okay. Ethnicity. Everybody quiet. Dr. Carr? No problem. They're relieved. The talk <laughs> I gave? Shades of whiteness. <laughs> that was my ethnicity talk to open up the conversation. So, all the principles and let's talk about shades of whiteness. Ethnic from the Greek, ethne, meaning other. Other than what? Depends on who the person defining. For the Greeks, it meant other than Greeks. For the Romans, it meant other than Roman. Ethne comes from the Greek designation of we are Elas. This was Obinga's Attic Greek and Liddell and Scott's lexicon and the dictionary came in handy. All that training Obinga gave us at night after we did Metonetia, we did a little Greek. It's an ethne. Okay, so the first thing I know is you go to the root, ethne. And then you start looking at not only the root definition, because that's normally as far as people take it if they do that much. Now you got to go not only into the word history, but the surrounding cultural uh, um, commitments, the, sound, the surrounding historical forces, the surrounding social forces that led to the emergence of the use of this term. Well, to be ethnic means other, other than Greek. Elas, we are the civilized people. You people are not. And remember now, what is a Greek? Well, if you go to Athens, you're going to get a definition that's different if you go to Sparta. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. The point is other. Ethne mean other. And that meant that by the time it comes into the Latin, by the time the Romans get ahead of it, it also becomes you're not Roman. But then remember, the Romans are the ones, after having ice Jesus Christ, they began to absorb Christianity because they can't stop the movement. We can't beat them, join them. There's a lesson in that is when it comes to citizenship. Citizenship, the gold standard of humanity in the world that Europe has created is to be a citizen. It is ultimately the undermining of that attitude that will lead to the liberation of humanity if we can get past this notion of you got papers you don't have papers therefore it's two categories of humanity go back to the romans when they say a roman citizen okay you're not a citizen or you're not a roman you are other but guess what when they absorb christianity that means also now it takes on an added gloss because ethne is also the root of the word ethnic or also the root of the word heathen hmm. You're not Christian. You're heathen. Other than Christian. Once you get into 
European Christianity, also known as Catholicism, which is what most of these Latinos are, which Tanya Hernandez writes about, and which we're going to see in this article. We're going to tie it all together. We're tying it together now if you're paying close attention. The point is this, other. So when I get that talk at the school district, I'm saying other in this society means other than white. And so I gave a talk about how the ethnic groups became white and left the fight over ethnicity to the non-white groups. I said, the Italians who moved here, y'all real proud about being Italians in South Philly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even so proud that you keep your stores open on Martin Luther King's birthday and closed on Columbus Day, aren't you? Yeah. Colum uh, Martin Luther King Day, a federal holiday, go to South Philly. There are going to be stores that are open that probably should take the day off. Nah. Y'all against Martin Luther King? Not really. Y'all against black people? No, nah, not really but we got to keep up appearances <laughs> you know they let us park in the middle of the street down here on south broad street and you know I, my best friends are black but uh i gotta you know still gotta get a little bass in my voice when i talk about black people because the whole point of whiteness is to get away from blackness and so if you are a white ethnic an irish or italian or german you can acquire a shade of whiteness that's a little bit more preferred if you can distance yourself from the blacks even if you love the blacks, you love the music, you love the culture, you love the women and men, you love the whole thing, except now for power, I got to move into, you know, a little bit closer to whiteness. And then the rest of us is like, is that how you get power? Yeah, well, shit, I'm moving too. Here I come up. As David Jope, the, 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 the Caribbean poet once said, Africa, my Africa, though I have never seen you, my face is full of your blood. So guess what? You can't move into whiteness. I got, you can't make the eyeball test. Okay, well, what's the next best thing? Well, you speak English, so you're an American black. Uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, I ain't black. In fact, I love a line that Professor Hernandez puts in her book. She said, the darker the skin, the louder the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning what? I know I look like this, but listen, listen, I'm not one of these Negroes. And guess what? You can't blame them. Why? You came into a system where whiteness is the definition of humanity at the core, and then they're radiating circles out. The worst thing to be is on the outer periphery. That's called blackness. So what is ethnicity about? Shades of whiteness. Shades of whiteness. And if you want to see how race operates, Professor Hernandez says, you can't look at an Anglo-Latino Anglo conversation. You got to go into the Latino world. And that's when you find out the color gradations in the Latin world. world. And I'm not just talking about Spanish. Said Miles walked us through this several times, among others in Brazil, which is a Latino country, Portuguese. So let's go back to the article. This Oaxacan brother been called a short, dark person by another person who speaks Spanish with two other people on the line who speak Spanish talking about Latino political power, which ain't a thing, but they willing to throw the dark Latinos, which, what the hell does that mean, under the bus? We continue. It's painful to realize the discrimination never went away, Mr. Vasquez said. This is not what you expect of L.A. But the revelations did not feel unfamiliar to many community leaders and immigrants who have long faced discrimination in the United States at the hands of fellow Hispanic people. Now, mind you, this whole thing being written in a paper that is the paper of record of whiteness, which is why, just for a second, going back to the first paragraph, you got to write a torturous sentence like, 
Uh, the man was called uh, Little Oaken by other Mexicans because of his deep tan skin and diminutive stature. What is deep tan skin? Shades of whiteness. All right. I mean, but I, I ain't mad at the writer because you're grappling using a language that has been a handmade, a hand servant to power, racialized power for centuries. So you got to figure out how to write. And I know it's got to be crazy. People trying to come up with different language, but it's difficult because this whole thing has been locked in. Let's continue. Quote. Um, they just made public that their colonial minds have not changed, end quote, said Ordelia Romero, director and co-founder of Comunidades Indigenas en Liderazgo, or Indigenous Communities in the Americas. So this is the co-founder of Indigenous Communities in America saying, they're just saying out loud that their, their, their colonial mindset has not changed. He goes on. I'm sorry, here's the article. People from native pre-colonial communities in Latin America have frequently faced harassment in Los Angeles, a city that prides itself for being tolerant and diverse, and not just from white people. It's like Atlanta called itself the city too busy to hate in the 60s when SNCC had their offices down there. Remember that? I'm making that very deliberate comparison for something I'm going to come back to in about 10 minutes. Remember, the heart of today, even if it's just for a few minutes, we're going to talk about uh, a sister who made transition whose name should be known a lot better than it is. But we're going to use her as an example of solidarity politics and not just black solidarity politics, international solidarity politics, including Spanish speaking communities. So we're going to solve this city council problem with a sister who just made transition. All right. Continue. Quote, the assumption that if you are Latino and progressive, you don't hold racist views ignores the reality that racism is very deeply ingrained in Mexican and Latin American cultures. In quote, said Gabriela Domanzan, a Mexican-American who worked at a Hispanic community as a Hispanic community expert in both the Obama 2012 and O'Malley 2016 presidential campaigns. O'Malley, of course, Martin O'Malley, the governor of, former governor of Maryland. Shout out to Wes Moore, who's going to run like a steamroller over. Uh, thank, I'm glad you talked. See, this is why Another reason why black, not just black media, I ain't talking about all this stuff that just litters our minds every day. I'm talking about black journalism. I'm not talking about black journalism like celebrity journalism, what's so-and-so doing. No, I'm talking about the kind of journalism you're practicing, uh, Professor Hunter. So you bring these candidates on, you know, Chris Jones. Who Chris Jones? Chris Jones, come on. Chris Jones should be beating that hack. And let me stop, pause. Huckabee Sanders, some people might not know you know, beating her in, in, in Arkansas. But these people are going to vote their race over their humanity because for them, race is, for some of them, they think all they have. And I stress they think because it's not true, but the illusion will allow you to persist. As Michael Jackson tried to tell y'all, be careful what you do if the lie becomes the truth. So goes on and says, Latin America is one of the world's most ethnically diverse regions and throughout its history, racial and ethnic groups have converged there. Indigenous people, white colonizers, and black people brought as slaves. Their mixing gave rise to a, quote, browning, end quote, of Latin America with people of different shades of skin, depending on their heritage. Many people are now of mixed ethnicity, but people with lighter skin have remained at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy, while those with darker skin, whether indigenous or black, often tend to be poorer and to be shut out of elite social and political circles. And then the article, I mean, again, this is just like one-on-one. 
But again, the New York Times, who is their audience? Their audience is policymakers. Their audience is folk who, you know, talk to one another as they make decisions about the rest of our lives. The, the, the rest of us make decisions about our lives. So this is kind of like a primer to people who may not know or a reminder of people who do. But it makes the front page of the New York Times because it's a problem. And as you say, Professor Hunter, I mean, the voice of this paper is going to be influenced by not only events that are going on in the world, but the public policy of the country it's in, the people who own it, the people who own them, and everybody else. And when we read it, we make a mistake if we think in the uh, <laughs> if we think that this is a paper for the people or that any paper is for people. A media outlet, a newspaper, and when the black press was robust, robust when the salt was in our mouth, we could read that and say, okay, I know what you, who you're writing for. I know what you're saying here. I know that you're writing in our interest. But now the New York Times, diversity and equity be damned, don't matter. Guess what? They want you to read this and think like that old jingle they sing at Christmas time. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name is my name too. I love that song. Because here's a name that is so not you that when you sing it, you're saying something that's utter nonsense. It's a nonsense song, but I like to use that song to point out that that's how they want us to think about America. That's how they want us to think about our interests. You know, what about us? We fought the Indians. What about, okay, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt? They name is your name too? <laughs> In other words, ADOS, they name is your name too? They called you a slave. Now you're a descendant of a slave. They name is your name too? John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith, Negroes. Anyway, the point is, my name is not John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. It shouldn't be Greg Carr, but guess what? I don't know my name. Malcolm X said in following the Nation of Islam, I just use an X. And then he became a Muslim, made his Hajj, comes back of Hajj Malik El Shabazz. The, the, the Yoruba kids in London give him a name. Wasu, West African Student Union, gives him a name. Omawale, son who's returned home, the one who's returned home. So he got a lot of names. Then he gets off the plane. The white boys, first thing they want to know, your name is, uh, your name is uh, Hajj Malik. Well, what happened to Malcolm X? Malcolm looks at him with that smile. What smile said, well, as long as the conditions that made it necessary for me to be Malcolm X remain, my name will be Malcolm X. In other words, what y'all not going to do is try to make me into these different types of names. Okay? I am me. I am the son of uh, um, Earl Little and Louise Little. I am the sister of Louise Little. I am the sister of Wilfred. I'm, I'm, I'm the brother of Wilfred Little. In other words, that's who I am. But if it makes y'all comfortable to call me Malcolm X, no problem. No problem. If it makes Red Fox comfortable when he see me in the street, Red, to call me Red, that's fine too. Because guess what? What y'all not going to do is distract me. Yay. Yay, yay. <laughs> anyway, so this article then goes on to talk about how all these things change. For example, somebody says here, quote, if you say Latinos, you are lumping together Nuri Martinez, Ted Cruz, Everybody, he said. This is one of the. Uh, uh, this is Gaspar Rivera uh, Salgado, an Oaxacan who now directs the Center for Mexican Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. He says, "Too often, the tremendous diversity of the Latino population in the United States is overlooked." He said, "Oh, through I just named, you know, Miss Miss Martinez is Mexican American. Mr. Cruz, the Texas senator, is the son of a Cuban immigrant. 
but their lived experiences are completely different. He says the terms Hispanic and Latino have become embedded in the American mosaic, appearing in census forms, newspapers, and political polling since a law passed in 1976 began requiring federal agencies to aggregate into one group data. Okay, here we go, Prof. Why we say in the census since 1976? Federal agencies must aggregate into one group data on people who trace their ancestries to Spanish-speaking countries. The classification is based on common language, culture, and heritage, not race. People from the category are far from homogenous. Many have roots in Mexico, while others are Puerto Ricans, Argentines, Colombians, Cubans, Span Spaniards, and of course, indigenous people. Goes on to talk about how they've tried to do different things here, different stuff here. Um, let me go to the end. He says that He says, the disparaging language used by Ms. Martinez triggered all the microaggressions I felt from other Mexicans and Latinos throughout my life, said Miguel Dominguez, 37, who was university educated and was born and raised in Los Angeles to Oaxacan parents. Growing up, we heard a lot of belittling derogatory terms like Oaxita and Indio, indigenous, he said. While there were conflicts with neighbors, slurs were often hurled at his parents who spoke Zapotec, an Oaxacan indigenous language, he recalled. Now, let me pause here for a minute and shout out our brother Ureas, who in Monday night office hours when we were working through uh, the kind of uh, linkages between the woman king, who talks about the, uh, the women uh, warriors of Dahomey, and Black Panther, where there's this fictionalized gloss on those same women the fictionalized gloss is, of course, the Dora Milaje. And I said last week we would probably come back to this after we had the conversation, but I don't want to go. Uh, I want to. We'll I want to. But want to close this right at two hours if we can. If we can go leave it a little shorter than that, so maybe we'll talk more about this next week because it'll keep. But I want to raise this point I'm about to make now because in the context of what we just said, because uh, in talking about these decisions that were made, these filmmaking decisions. Um, Uraeus reminded us that because those of you who read comic books know that the Submariner, who's one of the oldest uh comic book characters in American comics, popular comics, the Submariner goes back to the 40s. This white dude who was from Atlantis with the little wings on his feet, right? Who was with Captain America and all them fighting the Nazis, whatever, you know, the under undersea kingdom. Well, he's gonna be prominent in Black Panther too, except. What Ryan Coogler and him have done is not make him white. He's indigenous. And as you see the um, the trailers for the film, you hear the language he's speaking, it's not Spanish. And so we're like, what, what language is it? And Uraeus, of course, who is steeped in all this stuff and is the center of a lot of these conversations, said, oh, he's going to be speaking Zapotec. Oh, I see you, Ryan Coogler. Look at, look at Coogler and these cats exploding Latino as a category. Because Zapotec is the language of Awakan, is, is Awakan language. And Awakan is the Southwest state in Mexico where the indigenous people are the majority. And the Awakans just got beat up by another Latina, whatever that means, in Los Angeles over the city council who called them the short, dark people so ugly. So go over there next to them Africans who speak English, them, uh, them Anglos with the monkey babies. Yeah, uh-huh. Shades of whiteness. Why? Because Martina is trying to fight her way into whiteness. And one of the ways you do it is distance yourself from these dark people. Even as you're on a damn phone call talking about Latino political power. What does it mean? 
It means that the people who are containing this, who are continuing to manage and manipulate this system, rely on these types of divisions. So it hits all the newspaper. Now people talking about boycott this. The black people are like, you got to resign. Okay, no problem. But where's the solidarity politics in it? It shouldn't just be people of African descent. It should be the Awakens. It should be a coalition. And to the, to the credit of the folks in L.A., you know, I, I know I know a lot of those folks out there who are in, in the street, they are building coalition politics. But if we don't build coalition politics, those who, here's another they, it's like, who is they? Well, one of they is Leonard Leo. Leonard, Le, Leonard Leo is a, a person who is bundling, he used to run the Heritage Foundation. And they have spent, since 2015, the groups that he is in now, he left the Heritage Foundation. He's raising money to fund these white masters campaigns and move all this misinformation in the United States. There was an article in the New York Times earlier this week uh, titled Leonard, Leonard Leo's network is increasingly powerful, but it's not easy to define. Of course, they ain't gonna hide it, but the subcategory, the subtitle was the groups in the network spent nearly $504 million on policy and political fights, including grants to about 150 allied groups between mid-2015 and late last year. Meaning what? Half a billion dollars has gone into not just the, the TV ads you see for these white nationalist politicians, not just for, to, to recruit these people and run them. It's also going to stuff like training poll workers. Yeah, it's an election coming in less than a month. They ain't just training people to go yell at you when you're trying to do your vote. They train the people to be the ones when you show up to vote, they're looking down on the road for your name. See, these people playing for keeps. We out here arguing about uh, uh, Kanye and arguing about ADOS. Tangibles, tangibles. Yo, man, this is what this is what they're trying to help us lose by doing. So let's bring this in. Um, I like I said, I wanted to talk a little bit about the woman king today, but I don't know if I want to do that. I might want to just hold off on that because I've got my eye on the clock and I want to make sure that we come in in, a, in under two hours. And um, yeah, yeah. No, actually, I know how I know how we're gonna tie it together. I know how we're gonna tie. It. Give me a second here. On Monday night, on Monday night, we had a real conversation about this film, The Woman King. We talked about the history of the uh, Agoji, the sisters who were the female guards of the ruler of the king in Dahomey. We talked a lot about how. Dahomey emerged as a, a powerful country. And we won't do all of this today. We did a lot of it Monday night. Maybe we'll talk, maybe I'll set aside next, next, let me push that to next Saturday to talk more about this. But I want to make these just very salient points on our way to the real conversation. Just the, the, the wrap, not the wrap up, but the real heart of what I'm going to talk about tonight, who is Ethel uh, today, Ethel Minor. But Monday night, we had a real conversation about the real issues behind the woman king because you got folk again led by this black nativist black citizen nativist kind of thrust and i don't know how much of it is trolls because i'm assuming a lot of it is and bots how much of it is people who just got really who are really thinking about reparations and being harmed and want and saying boycott the woman king well, shit, we're gonna boycott hollywood movies boycott them all shit, boycott them all I don't care how good or not good. When I mean, you want to start talking about the dream factory. I mean, there's a whole other conversation we need to have. But why got to boycott the woman king? Because they sold us into slavery. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Again, take some time with this. Uh, there was a lawsuit filed um, 
on Friday, and I talked about this on Monday uh, in office hours, uh, Deidre Farmer Paleman, who's uh, well-known in reparation circles, uh, a lot of work around the corp- corporate uh, involvement, corporations and business involvement and enslavement, sued, has sued a lot of companies, you know, done a lot of very important work. But uh, last week in the United States District Court here, the Circuit Court for the District of Columbia, uh, she led a group called the Restitution Study Group to sue the Smithsonian Institution to prevent the transfer of uh, about almost three dozen of the so-called Benin bronzes to uh, Nigeria, to the government of Nigeria on behalf of the Nigerian people. These are bronzes that were looted by the British, shout out to Queen Elizabeth and King Charles, looted by the British in the 19th century and taking their stolen booty all over the world. And some of them ended up in collections in the United States, including the Smithsonian Institution. And on Tuesday, I was actually in class. We were talking about this because I wish I could have seen a live stream, but it was a private ceremony. And later they released a video where Lonnie Bunch, the brother, Jersey guy, who uh, is the director of the Smithsonian, the secretary of the Smithsonian's technical term, um, signed a transfer to the brother from Nigeria. And those pieces were transferred to Nigeria. Well, some foundational Black American slash American descendants of slavery slash kind of battery in the back type ideological comrades, I suppose, sued. No, why? Because their claim is that those bronzes were, many of them were made with metals that came from payments from Europeans who paid the Africans who made that art to sell us, to buy us, buy those of us who ended up in the Western Hemisphere. And there are all kinds of legal issues. In fact, Angie Porter and I talked about this, Felicia Watkins, we were talk, going back and forth on the legal issues involved. How do you prove standing? You know, uh, 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 Paleman claims, Dieter Paleman claims, Farmer Paleman claims that she can establish through DNA, you know, people taking the swab, thinking they tell you where you're from. Say less. <laughs> I'm not going, uh, we had to get our, our sister Fatima Jackson on here, the, uh, the biological anthropologist to tell you why that's a, a fail. But at any rate, trying to set a, you know, standing, she's saying that, well, I am descended from the people who came from Dahomey, were shipped out of that port, Weta, so I can, I have standing. Okay, but the larger issue, I'm going to set aside the legal issue and get to the real issue here. The, the real issue is how should we be interacting with each other? It's a governance issue. And that's what we work through on Monday night at office hours. What should and how should the relationship between African people globally look? What should it look like? At, at its basics. We're all different people, but ultimately the salt of enslavement created a new thing that hadn't existed before. What? Black people, the Negro, just, just this broad label. Now, is it useful? Can that label be useful for solidarity politics? The answer, of course, is yes. Whether it be the Afro-Cuban uh, Luciano Pozo, Chano Pozo, getting with John Burks Gillespie from Sheet Rock, South Carolina, and creating what becomes Afro-Cuban jazz, whether it be as Professor Hernandez opens her book with Silla Cruz of, Cu- of Cuba, who is beloved in the Spanish-speaking world. However, she Afro-Cuban. And all of them going to Zaire in 1974 with Bill Withers and the Spinners and everybody else, you know, uh, 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 Mary Makeba creating this Pan-African concert, even though you got a whole ass thug in terms of Mobutu Sese Seko putting it on to cover his crimes in Congo. As John Henry Clark, you say, 
in some stories, it ain't no good guy. So the talk that said about the homie was a traitor and enslaved Africans is true. It's also true that some of them enslaved Africans ended up in the Western Hemisphere. And as we talked about on Monday night, some of those sisters might have been on the island of Haiti helping trade people who fomented the Haitian Revolution. If you talk to Haitians, they will tell you that. So it's a complicated story. And one thing is not complicated. What? In the social structure, all of this animus came out of Europe. And we'll talk more about this next week again, as I said. I think we'll, we'll, we'll put this off next week. But the reason I'm bringing this up in a broad sense now, and as it relates to what we're talking about today in terms of solidarity politics and how we overflow these boundaries that allow our imagination, these freedom dreams that Robin is talking about, to overflow these labels we've been given so we can actually fight with each other for a transformed society to help us all, including in poor whites who have believed that whiteness is somehow the best thing they have, which is, of course, absurd. Well, we have to begin with who we are to each other, that governance category, that second Africana studies conceptual category, which is why we had to develop a methodology to get out of our heads first who we are to other people. Because I promise you, that's where 99% of what people claim they're doing as Black studies is. It's the study of Blacks in a social structure. You've inherited the language. You've inherited the academic disciplines. You fight within the disciplines to be heard, to felt seen. All that language, you keep it in the social structure. We're in this point, in this category, governance, who we are to each other. Having had to create that first category to get that noise out of our head, now we can talk about who we are to each other. And what we then begin to see is that the question of reparations which is ultimately a state-level question, even though there are global solidarity movements, meaning what? For ADOS and FBA talking about, you know, run the check, we need tangibles. That's a, you're anchoring that in a theory of citizenship that we've just seen why it's so deeply flawed. Because the citizenship language comes, imports all this other slice and dice language with it, whether it be the language of the census or the language that allows the LA City Council chair to talk about somebody else who speaks Spanish as the little dark ones. Wait, but I thought, well, with the, no, uh-uh. No, 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 no. That all comes with the idea of an elevated form of humanity called citizen. And if you are other than citizen, a political heathen, other than citizen, not a member of this culture, going back to the Greek and Latin notion of self and other, once you've accepted citizenship as the way you see the world, and people who are not citizens are fighting to acquire citizenship, they'll do anything to become citizens. But what if on the way to transforming the whole notion of citizenship, you begin to say, no, we have to overflow the boundaries that we see binding us in terms of our political identities. And that's where I wanna to go today at the end to a sister named Ethel Minor who made transition, as I said. Ethel Minor, only met Ethel Minor one time. And, I, and I, maybe I'll tell you that story in the context of what I wanna to mention today. Um, Ethel Minor was born in 1938. She's from Chicago. Um, her, like I said, her funeral was uh, Monday for last in Chicago. Um, I was able to watch the 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 uh, funeral was streamed and recorded. And her sister's husband, Bob Starks, very good friend of mine. He's a professor still at Northeastern Illinois, the Jacob Carruthers Center. Last time I saw him was at Anderson Thompson's ritual. They had uh, just shortly before COVID. Uh, Bob Starks, one of the major figures, helped co-founder of the of the uh, the um, the community in Chicago. Who he spoke very quietly, well, very briefly at the, at the at the ceremony. But Ethel Minor, M I N O R, 
if you look for her in the histories of the 60s, 70s, the 50s, you won't find a lot. You have to go look for her. And when you look for her, you'd be like, wait a minute, how do we not know about Ethel Minor? Ethel Minor moved to Columbia for two years as part of her studies and, and lived in Colombia, the country, traveled around the Caribbean. She traveled Puerto Rico. This was like 1961, 1962. She came back and her nephew told the story <laughs> at the funeral. She said, uh, she, Monty knocked at the door of Elijah Muhammad. And those of you in Chicago, you know, you know where that house is, Southside Chicago. The original house, not the one across the street with Fairkind and has the, the original house, Elijah Muhammad, the big house there. Knocked on the door. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm here to provide my services. I believe in what you're saying. I like a lot of what you're saying. She joined the Nation of Islam and she worked for Elijah Muhammad. She published in Muhammad Speaks. There's a two-part uh, article she published in two issues of Muhammad Speaks in April 1963. That paper, of course, was started by Malcolm X, where she writes about Jim Crow in Colombia. If you saw Ethel Minor, you know she was of African descent, but she was kind of cafe au lait color. And so she said, I was in Colombia and I see black people treated terribly down here. She said, I could go in a restaurant because they thought I was white. Going back to Professor Hernandez, writing, what is that, 60 years later about this? Ethel Minor's like, I saw that up close. She said, this is nothing but colonialism. She said, this is what, what colonialism did to us. And then she goes in on Christianity because it is Muhammad Speaks after all. She said, <laughs> she says, can it still be claimed by these few so-called successful Negroes that we are better off than our African brothers who have the security of living in their own country and are now becoming masters of their own destiny? She said, y'all keep clinging to America as if it's better than other places. And the color line, as Du Bois says, belt the world. And at least in Africa, whatever problems they have, and there are many, many problems, they don't have a problem of determining their own destiny grounded in something other that, that has race at the center. Now, there are a whole other kind of problems because this ethnicity foolishness then now invaded Africa because they superimposed this Western concept of ethnicity down there now. So people will argue about their language groups there. But she said, you know, she's writing about how color operates in the African world. Well, here's another interesting thing about her. She befriends and becomes close with Malcolm X. When Malcolm X leaves the Nation of Islam, Ethel Minor leaves with him. She is one of the founders of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, and she was Malcolm's personal secretary. Now I got to go find my man, Peter Bailey. I ain't talked to Baba Peter in a while because I know Peter Bailey knows Ethel Minor. But I'm checking even his memoir, one of his memoirs, Master Teacher. He, he don't cite her. You're looking at the Malcolm scholarship. They don't have Ethel Minor listed in there. But when you read the original charter of the Organization of Afro-American Unity and see, I didn't know enough Back in the late 80s, early 90s, when John Clark was alive and he and I, he and I would have conversations, I would, I mean, if, hell, I could have asked Ethel Minor herself, even. But I didn't want to bother her, really. It was so funny. I'll tell you this story in a minute. It's the only time I got to see Ethel Minor in person and, and touch her, shake her hand. And this was in a very electric moment at the 50th anniversary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because guess what? Malcolm was assassinated. Ethel Minor joined SNCC. Ethel Minor became the director of communications for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, <laughs> headquartered in Atlanta. 
So I'm looking at uh, the sister who was at the University of Cal- uh, University of Tennessee. Uh, soon we will not cry. Crystal Fleming. Her book on Ruby Doris Robinson Smith, who, of course, the sister who was the anchor at SNCC in the Atlanta office and, and just a legend in SNCC circles. You still talk about Ruby, Ruby Dor- Dor- uh, Doris Robinson made transition far too soon. Only one mention of F.O. Minor, and it was about the fact that, you know, everybody was trying to go natural. In other words, they want to wear afros. And so as they was trying to wear afros in Atlanta, uh, some of the young sisters who were undergraduates around the SNCC office, who were undergraduates at Spelman, the dean at Spelman, called one sister in and was like, what you do to your hair? She said, what you talking about? She said, I washed it. No, but why is it sticking up all over your head? You'll never get a man. This is the dean of women at Spelman. The dean, not you say of women, because Spelman's Women's College. The dean telling this uh, uh, older sister, telling the younger sister, you'll never get a man with that hair sticking up all over your head. What? Are you serious right now? Well, apparently, this sister had the kind of hair that if you wash it, it's going to stick straight. She couldn't get an afro to, to kind of come together the way she wanted it. So then when the next sister came in with hair like that, like we want, you know, how do I get my, how to go to afro? The sister said, let's go ask a barber. And the barber was like, yeah, your hair going to look like her hair. The sister who came in said, I want my hair, I want an afro too, was Ethel Minor. Uh, Julian Bond uh, had run for office in Georgia. He won the state, le- he won his seat in the state legislature, but they would not seat him. Why? Because the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came out against the war in Vietnam. By then, Julian Bond was not a day-to-day member of SNCC, but he was had run for office and he became uh, a state, uh, Cong- he state representative in Georgia. Now, those of you who know that story, you know, ultimately that, well, I'm going to get into the Julia Bond story, but let me just go to the point. Shortly after Julian Bond won office, 1967, here comes, so it's actually before Malcolm, uh, yeah, no, it was after Malcolm, of course, after Malcolm got assassinated, because Ethel Minor was with him until he got assassinated, and she comes, joins SNCC. Says that uh, Cortland Cox wrote a letter and sent to the funeral. And it didn't have all this detail in it, but what I'm about to tell you was one of the details it had in it. He said, shortly after Julian Bond, Julian won that office. Uh, Ethel Minor walked into our offices in Atlanta and volunteered her services. She eventually became, Charlie Cobb was close to her. I need to talk to uh, Charlie too, because I know Charlie got some stories about Ethel Minor. I'm sure they have some kind of gathering. If they haven't already had it, they probably did, because SNCC folk really good about gathering and having conversations, particularly when one of them makes transition. Says that, uh, she became the director of SNCC communications and Ethel Minor was the editor. Now this is, you know, short, you know, during this around time that Stortley Carmichael or Kwame Ture, as we know him now, Stortley Carmichael replaces John Lewis as the chair of SNCC. SNCC is taking much broader positions on international affairs. Here's we coming home now towards solidarity politics. And as SNCC is taking positions on international affairs and solidarity politics, the heat is rising on them not to do that. <laughs> in fact, I think this is how I'm going to tell the story about uh, when Ethel Minor was in North Carolina at the 50th anniversary of SNCC. This will help tie everything together in a minute. Well, they publish, and if you go back and look at the history of Freedom Schools, 1964 in Mississippi, you'll see when you look at the publication of the newspapers that they ran in freedom schools a lot of these edited and with articles by teenagers 
One of the things that emerges out of those freedom schools and out of those newspapers from that period, and SNCC had a, a newsletter, a regular newsletter that circulated beginning in the early 60s, a student voice. There's a good collection called a student voice. Then they continue the newsletter. At any rate, is a critique of the Vietnam War. The early actions in Vietnam, which go back, of course, to the Kennedy administration, well, really Eisenhower, but Kennedy administration then ramp up during Johnson. So by 1964, Vietnam is a thing. You know, that's what prevents Johnson from running for, for election again. And of course, King comes out against the war in Vietnam. Vincent Harding, of course, he helps him write that speech, among, among other things. But by 1967, SNCC has taken position against Vietnam, against intervention, U.S. intervention in Vietnam. And Julian Bond has denied his seat in the Georgia legislature in part because of his stance on Vietnam, one of these white reporters sticks a mic in his face like, you know, what about Vietnam? Well, I'm no longer a member of SNCC. However, yeah, I, I support the SNCC position. Okay, this guy can't hear you. You're not American. Okay, fast forward to the, the Warnock-Walker debate. This ain't none of this history coming into the informed decisions of people in Georgia. Kill a mic. Go read the Georgia. I know you know the Georgia history, but I would tell you to go read it, but I know you read it. My question is, why are you doing what you're doing? Caper for Brian Kemp and them. Maybe you got a reason. Would love to hear it. Or maybe not. You know, life is short. I got more books to read and conversations like this to have. But at any rate, Julian Bond is denied his seat because of the position he takes on Vietnam. Among other things. That's the excuse they made. Now, eventually the case makes it to the Supreme Court. Eventually he is seated. But Ethel Minor edits an issue of the SNCC newsletter in the summer of 1967, in the June 1967, where SNCC takes uh, uh, two pages in their newsletter to walk readers through the crisis in Palestine. The crisis in Palestine. That's the hot button. Because remember, 1948, the United Nations declares that uh, part of Palestine, they say, well, this is the state of Israel, going to create the state of Israel here. And then by 1967, you've got this continuing occupation from people who are not from that region into that region, people who are Jewish into that region. And you talk about solidarity politics. Marcus Garvey said this in the 1920s. Day. Look at Palestine and the Jews. Look at the Zionist movement. The whole idea of creating a homeland for Jews. Okay, that sounds reasonable. A homeland for Jews. Where would it be? Well, we can go here, go here. No, here, the Holy Land. Okay, it's people living there. And the rest, since then, has been at the center of Jewish solidarity politics, internationalism, and also conflict. Because you're moving people out who were there to live there. And who supports, who doesn't support, whose interests, certainly after World War I with the Balfour Agreement, World War II, when you see the United Nations form and the European powers, England, United States, they looking for all this to make this go away. The history of how people uh, who are Jewish have been treated by Europe is legendary. You want to look for the roots of anti-Semitism? Look no further than Europe in so many ways. And then, you know, there's a bevy of scholarship on that, but we won't get into that today. Just making the point that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee devoted two pages in their July 1967 issue of their newsletter to walking people through the history of that conflict. Well, all hell broke loose because they were accused of being anti-Semitic. They were accused of being anti-Israel. They were accused of being, and they were saying, no, it's solidarity politics with the Palestinian people because they are being oppressed. And this isn't doing anything other than giving people an information sheet to go with who did this, talk about who they are. No, we're not doing an abstract they. 
boom, 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 boom. I forget how many points it was. Maybe 30 or 40 points in between the two pages. Well, Ethel Miner was the editor of the SNCC newsletter that did that. This international solidarity politics. And so we had to understand that in the wake of that, many of all the primary donors to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they were paying the bills and they never got paid much money, the workers directly, and then they to run their operations, evaporated, evaporated. And SNCC closed. Pause. I saw they, they announced the MacArthur quote-unquote genius grants this uh, this last week and a number of people who are well-deserving and should be absolutely supported in their work. A lot of people have been talking about particularly Kaisi Lehman, brother who's at Rice University, used to be at University of Mississippi, a good son of Mississippi, very generous, warm, uh, you know, big-hearted brother doing a lot of important work, got one. You know, it's beautiful. There's a lot of people who we know who've gotten those awards. It's a great thing. And they weren't counting on that money. You know, the MacArthur's are supposed to be secret. You know, nobody know. Of course, the MacArthur people know, which means somebody know. But the whole point is that, you know, this whole notion of support and philanthropy, the cycles of grants and begging, this kind of thing. In fact, Ethel Miner writes about that in 1963 in her talk. Uh, and she's writing about Columbia when she writes that, you know, we shouldn't be begging and relying on other people to support us. In fact, she almost comes out in a critique of reparations. She said, y'all talking about reparations? These people, no, we, we have enough collective power to organize and marshal our forces and our economic resources to be able to build some independent stuff. Now that's up for debate and discussion, but certainly we know we're supporting and developing Nubia, we're developing narrative, and that just adds the latest iteration to any number of other places that are being that have been developed, whether it be businesses like uh, Sankofa and Calabash, or whether it be all the black bookstores that are listed in the new, in the narrative database, or whether it be all the institutions that, because they are independent, can take a different stance in the world. So if you get somebody from somewhere else, that's beautiful. Business is open to everybody. We want everybody's business. But at the same time, these resources now can be plowed into something we're doing. Ethel Miner was making those observations in the 1950s and 60s. So SNCC closes. Well, then she moves to continue to work with Stokely Carmichael, who becomes Kwame Ture. Now you listen to, you know, Stokely, listen to Baba Kwame, or you even read his Ready for Revolution. She's mentioned one time by name. He talks about what happened with the whole critique of uh, what was going on in Palestine and Israel and being called anti-Semitic and all that stuff. And he doesn't name her, but he talks about there was a sister who compiled all the data we had and put this in, you know, and so therefore, you know, she was, you know, she was widely excoriated and SNCC then began to fall apart. Okay, he's talking about Ethel Minor, but he names her in part in only one other place. And if you read James Foreman, The Making of Black Revolutionary, she only named one time James Foreman. I mean, Ethel Minor is present and in the middle of much of the civil rights black power movement. And she comes in after having been Malcolm X's personal secretary after having been Elijah Muhammad, working for Elijah Muhammad. You got to understand, so how do I know not, no, not know Ethel Minor? Because Ethel Minor wasn't giving the rah-rah speeches. Ethel Minor, who came out of a Chicago family, Ethel Minor's cousins included the Crest sisters, Lauren and Barbara Crest, and their probably better known sister, Frances Crest. Yes, Frances Crest Welsing. 
That was their cousins. You understand. Uh, Lauren Kress, who's one of the founders of Pacifica Network here, uh, WPFW, uh, beautiful sister, just, you know, an amazing force. Her sister, Barbara, I mean, you know, at, at the funeral, they're talking about those relationships. I mean, Barbara Kress, if memory serves me correctly, was married to Guillaume Bluford, the black astronaut. Yeah, I mean, these, these are, I mean, the class things kind of become intriguing too, because you're talking about people who technically, quote unquote, made it out. What does that mean? That means I'm not with the masses of Negroes if I don't want to be. Their solidarity politics begins in the community. Unlike this Hernandez sister who wants to jump on the walking cat, even though y'all both technically Latino, why? Because you fighting to get a shade of whiteness above him. Solidarity politics means when you, when I come into city council, we come into city council. I'm not meeting with two other Spanish speakers about Latino political power as a way to trade so we can move two rungs up on the ladder and lead the rest of you dark people down here. No, when you see me, you see us. That's a different kind of politics. And there's a precedent for us doing that kind of work as I continue as so I'm way to the close. Ethel Minor, her first solidarity was with black people. And then she proved it. Nation of Islam. Then Malcolm. I'm not talking about just a member. No, I'm doing Malcolm's correspondence. I'm setting up his calendar. When he travels, man, I'm going with him certain places. Wow, what the hell? They killed him. Okay, I'm keeping it moving. Let me go, Miss Snick. Oh, you in SNCC? No, I'm, I'm the director of communications. I'm SNCC. And then this newsletter begins the beginning of the end in some ways. The money dries up. Well, we ain't going to fund y'all liberation effort. We fund y'all as far as you go. Shit, by that time, Dr. King is taking attention hell. We spent a month reading Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. Him walking through the critique. And as Ethel Minor points out, the people who feel the most betrayed, it ain't the white nationalists. Them, them, them hillbillies lining up to vote for uh, uh, Herschel Walker while we talking about Kanye. No, it's the white liberal. Remember, Dr. King says fire to that white liberal mindset. I'm so offended. What did you do? What the hell are you? Oh, so was you ever with me? Or was only when you was comfortable? And these young people in SNCC are pushing this envelope. Well, then they say, okay, well, I'm gonna take my money back. Right, damn, we needed that money. Okay, then she's with Kwame Ture. Back and forth to the continent of Africa. There's a famous picture of Ethel Miner standing between Kwame Ture, so they call Michael on one side, and Kwame Nkrumah on the other side. Yeah. In fact, I was looking at Peter Brightman's uh, the I'm not convinced this isn't her. And the beautiful thing about this is in Nubia, and I want to say this while I'm thinking about it, is that, and again, when this is when this is uh, released to the larger global community in, in, in YouTube, see, we talk about jailbreaking the black university, it's jailbroken in this space. Like what we do on Monday nights, what we do everything with Mario and Meta Nature, with Maroons, Medicine Chess, with all the things we're doing and all the other things we're going to do and on the verge of doing. This is collective. To use the common parlance of the market today is crowdsourced. The university doesn't exist here in the way that, that it has been curated outside. So the books I'm talking about where you don't see Ethel Minor, they're really of no consequence because this is a human story. Watching her funeral and listen to her family speak and listen to those come together, Illinois Black United Fund, uh, other folks coming up talking about the solidarity politics. And I'm going to tell you a very story about Black Brown politics in a second to kind of this and the story about North Carolina will we'll end this for today. History is made by the masses of the people. Kwame Trey used to love to say that. They started the All African People's Revolutionary Party because um, Kwame Nkrumah lied that, lied, laid that out in his writings that should be this kind of solidarity piece. And then 
Prophet Ray is like, yeah, we're going to add the diaspora. We're going to be in that space. Following again, what Malcolm X had said with the Organization of Afro-American Unity after he came back from Africa. Who's in there helping type the stuff up right up? Ethel Minor. Quiet. As Bob Brown, one of Kwame Ture's closest comrades and stalwarts, said in the wake of her passing, she was a quiet storm. They mentioned that quote from Bob Brown at the funeral. Well, we together are doing this. So Ethel Minor, somebody said this at the funeral, said, you know, she didn't want to talk about herself. She didn't like to talk about herself. And uh, Bob Starks, Dr. Starks said this. He said, I, I begged her. I begged my sister-in-law. Please tell your story. Please tell your story. People kept saying that. Please tell your story. Now, all these people walked to earth who knew Ethel Minor. And I know that there's some people in here right now who knew her. We're going to need to crowdsource this story. This isn't an academic trying to track down the stuff and get the archive together and then write. Because when you do see her name mentioned, it's usually about that 67 memo. Because academics are looking to, you know, promote themselves, move forward. Ain't nothing wrong with that, I suppose, as far as it goes. But you can't get the story because two things. Number one, this is mouth to ear stuff. The story I told you all about getting your hair. Dr. Fleming talked to, did an interview. And then I said, I want to see the transcript of the interview because that's the only mention of Ethel Minor. No, I want to know the rest of it because she, but now I know what to do though. I'm just going to sit and listen to the SNCC people. I already know. And I'm embarrassed to say I should have, you know, known if I knew now what I knew then, I would have done more than then. You know what I'm saying? But I know now what I know now, and I know that we all, between all of us, know much of the rest of it. It is time now to really engage with the stories of the Ethel Miners, because this isn't for a university press. This isn't for, this is for institutions we control. It is for groundings we control because it is roadmaps for solidarity politics. It's roadmaps for building collective work. All right, so Ethel Miner is with Stony Carmen. In fact, I was looking at George Brightman's last year of Malcolm X. And here's a picture of Malcolm right after the OAAU meeting. And I don't think this is Ethel Minor, but I'm not sure it's not because she kind of is the same color and kind of the same shape of her face. I'm not sure that's not Ethel Minor with that head wrap on. But I need to now figure out, I don't know if this guy, Eli, whatever his name is, Eli Finer is still alive, but I know who to ask. I just haven't asked him yet. I'm going to find Paul Lee. I'll ask Paul. If any living human being on the planet Besides, well, somebody in here right now or somebody later on YouTube in the comments knows, Paul will know. Muriel Feelings was there the day Malcolm got assassinated. That was my friend. And we've talked about Yuri Koshiyama, of course, who cradled Malcolm as he lay dying there. And, said, but, and Peter Bailey might know. I'm going to ask Baba Peter, too. Anyway, by 67, Stokely Carmichael has published Black Power. By, by um, 1971, he publishes this volume, Stokely Speaks. Black Power Back to Pan-Africanism by Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Vantage book. First Vantage book. Now, Vantage is published in the United States by Random House. Stokely Carmichael tells the story where he was approached by his freshman English teacher. Now, he had graduated in 1964. This is the late 60s, early 70s. He's approached by her and she says, you should do a book. You should do a book of your speeches. The former freshman comp teacher who was then working at Random House, who told Story Carmichael he should publish his speeches, that would be Toni Morrison, <laughs> who was teaching freshman comp at Howard when, when Stokely took it, and he fell in love with her, talking about how beautiful she was in class, all this kind of thing. Later on, she comes in, she publish, and guess who puts the speeches together? In fact, not only did she put the speeches together, she wrote the editor's preface 
the editor's preface to Stokely Speaks, Black Power Back to Pan-Africanism, because people write about Stokely Carmichael and they freeze him in the 60s. This book will take him through your development. Who wrote it? Ethel N. Minor. Ethel Minor gonna be like Anna Arnold Hedgeman. <laughs> Are you serious? Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, SNCC, Stokely Carmichael, Black Power, all Africa's People's Revolutionary Party, all of this together. <laughs> Ethel Minor walks through the political transformation of Stokely Carmichael and then introduces the world to all these speeches in a book she edits that Toni Morrison convinced him he needed to do, but he couldn't do it. He had time. She did it. Ethel Minor. So finally, when she made transition, uh, one of the messages that were sent to the funeral was by uh, another former SNCC member, uh, Maria uh, Varela. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. So let me read it to you all. In 1967, SNCC sent a delegation of five of us to attend a multicultural conference convened by Rez Lopez Tejerna. Y'all see where I'm going with this? In Albuquerque to sign a treaty of peace, harmony, and mutual assistance. So the indigenous people, these are including a lot of Latinos, trying to build a coalition with SNCC. They had to build a coalition with the Panthers, the move, which is one of the reasons why the story in North Carolina, I'm going to tell y'all what happened. Ralph Featherstone, Willie Ricks, Ethel Minor, Freddie Green and I made up the delegation. This was probably the first time that many of the Alizantas membership had met with Black folk. Spanish-speaking, indigenous people, and Black folk together building coalition politics, 1967. Ethel Remember I said she spent two years in Colombia? She speaks Spanish fluently. Ethel put everyone at ease when she spoke to the convention of over 500 people in Spanish. We all went up to the mountains later that week where we came across a family who were admirers of Malcolm X. Latinos! Admirers of Malcolm X and had a coalition, I'm sorry, collection of news clips about him. Ethel was astounded and felt a bond with these folks as she was close to Malcolm. At the funeral, they talked about the fact that Ethel Minor going to this coalition building with half a thousand Latinos in the room speaking in Spanish communicated it to them in a way that immediately made them see not only the political, the value of political solidarity, but the kind of cultural gesture. This isn't an other. These are our people and we are going to build coalition politics. Well, you know, the social structure worked like hell to destroy all that, but she ain't even in the COINTELPRO papers, at least not the ones I'm looking at. I'm looking at these two volumes that Paul Coates has recently republished. Where's Ethel Minor? One mention in the making of Black Revolutionaries. Kwame Ture mentions her. These are like six, seven hundred page books. So I'm saying, wow, I'm looking at the other scholarship and then I realize, of course, Ethel Minor was a quiet storm, as Bob Brown said. So finally, in March 19, I'm sorry, March 2010, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had its 50th anniversary reunion at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I think I've told y'all this story before, but I won't get into the whole politics of how we got there. And I was in the room sitting there when they had a panel on, I don't know if I'm hearing some feedback. You hearing it, Prof? No. I hear something. Is that me? I don't know. I don't hear anything. Okay, good. I'm all right. I'm sorry. I hear something. All right, good. When I he, when uh, I'm, I'm in this panel, and it was an honor for me to be invited to be a panelist in another conversation we had on Pan-Africanism and, uh, and education, which is really something in, 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 in the conference. But we're sitting here. I could not wait. I think a lot of people couldn't wait. 
the panel topic was SNCC, how it came into existence, how it endured, and why it ended. Well, we know one of the major reasons why the money dried up. So we're sitting there, places packed. And it wasn't a big room. The probably room may have seated maybe 100. I'm sure it was twice that number around trying to get squeezed in, looking at sitting there. I got there early for them. Let me get so my man, Tim Jenkins, who still lives here in D.C., Timothy Jenkins, Joyce Ladner was the moderator, Dr. Ladner, who was the first female president of Howard University, a member of SNCC. She and her sister, Dory Ladner, the Ladner sisters out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, who else was on that panel? Uh, oh, Mama Zahara Simmons, Professor Simmons was there. And uh, Cleve Sellers, Cleveland Sellers. Those are the names I remember. Anyway, so they're going one by one by one by one. Like 90 minutes in, they started taking questions and answers. So this elder stands up, comes to the microphone. She's sitting there like, she said, there's a young sister in front of her. I'll never forget. I'm sitting, I'm sitting there looking at this sister. And she said, uh, you know, I, uh, I've been waiting for this panel. I was so worried. She says, I've had some health challenges. Then I overslept. So I got here late, but I'm glad to get here now. I want to say a few words. She said, you know, in the 1950s, Gamel Nasser was my first hero. Gamel Nasser. Gamel Nasser was the first president of what they call the uh, Arab Republic, United Arab Republic, now Egypt. Pan-Africanist, Gamel Nasser. You know, um, he and Kwame Nkrumah, one east, one the west. Whatever else you think about him. Gamel Nasser also you know, negotiating after the creation of Israel, you know, leading the Arab forces, the Arab, I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated history. And Nasser's my hero. That's what this elderly, this elder woman said. Right? Then she said, after they took him out, Kwame Nkrumah became my hero. Kwame Nkrumah, she's just talking, yeah, she's kind of laid out. She said, Nasser was my hero because he stood up to the West in Israel. She said, you had to understand that, you know, in grad school, I took about eight classes in on the history of the Middle East and Islam. And where's she going with this? And everybody's quiet though. Now, many of the people, most people in here are SNCC veterans. So I don't know who this lady is by eyeball, but I know a lot of them and I know they ain't looking like they, you know, are irritated. They just kind of listening. Okay. She says, uh, so I was afraid with this panel, I wanted to get here because I was afraid I was going to get blamed. For the demise of SNCC. Everybody's quiet. Hmm? She said, because you know, I was the one that edited the issue on Palestine. And when the issue came out, New York went crazy. The New York office went crazy. And they're like, Ethel Minor has blown up. And then you heard people say, That's Ethel Minor. Now, <laughs> now so I'm looking at him like, yo. She said, I was so afraid I was going to get blamed because all that money disappeared. All that money dried up. And then she said, and this ain't in none of these publications. I'm laughing. I'm looking at me. She said, I did not intend for that to happen. And everybody busts out laughing. <laughs> I mean, you got to understand, Joyce Ladner said this after she finished. She said, you know, this struggle took a toll on those young people. You know, they had a hit on, J. Edgar Hoover, they basically put a hit on Kwame Turay and a whole bunch of other people in COINTELPRO said, well, King is dead. We got to prevent the rise of a black messiah. Man, Kwame Turay gets the hell out of the country. You know, he marries Mary McCabe. Ethel Minor is there with him. 
Ethel, my, I mean, so, but they talk about these are young people, many of them. They talking about trying to crush careers. Cleveland Sellers, after she finished talking, said, please, y'all understand, the Ford Foundation, George McBundy had a meeting in Arizona with the civil rights groups with the, on the agenda was this item, the one item that drove the agenda. How do we isolate and destroy SNCC? He said, that happened. So here we are in 2022. Understand all the funding and all the great rah-rah and all that. How do it free us? Ethel Miner died of old age. Revolutionary. Straight revolutionary. Internationalist. Solidarity worker. And then she said, I did not intend for that to happen. Everybody started laughing. And then the elder said this. She said, I thought that we were right to inform the world about what was going on in Palestine. And then you hear this chorus of people saying, you were right. You were right. They want to do that today. People scared as hell, whether it be the BDS and all this kind of, oh, no, no, I won't mess the money up. And she says, SNCC was my life. And when SNCC disappeared, it just, it just, it just moved me. And I thought about that. That was 12 years ago. The story of Ethel Minor is really just, is all of our stories. When you stand up to power, it's hard to stand by yourself. You need organizations, you need formations. When you tell the truth, it becomes even more difficult if it's going to upset the existing power arrangements. But if you stand together, you will not only endure, you will see the victory. And that victory might not come in that moment. It might not come a decade from now, but victory is assured because it's only through solidarity. It's not through turning inward. And as we heard finally Monday night in office hours, um, this is from North Carolina said, you know, she was talking, I said, well, how do we get past this notion of citizenship? How do we, so we can talk to each other, you know, so it doesn't become, become, become about Africans selling Africans into slavery. Okay. How do we come up with another concept of how we engage with each other? So it might look like, for example, okay, part of the reparations that Africans owe each other, because these, now these people in the social structure are saying, oh yeah, well, you know, you should get your reparations from the Africans that sold you into slavery, not from the British. Okay. You start in confusion. You the one brought the damn boat down there. So the reparations come from you. And if you think giving those Benin bronzes, brat, is a problem, uh, ADOS people, you need to calm down. What form of interacting with each other can we develop? It might look like these diplomatic passports that the African Union has developed that already exist, that they're projecting to give to all Africans on the continent at some point. Guess what? I want one of them passports. Greg Carr from Nashville, Tennessee, need a passport that allows me to go anywhere in the African world. And guess what? If Mia Moore Motley has her way and then people in Caricom, I can go in the Caribbean too. Guess what? And when the United States and Great Britain and England and France say, hell no, you can't do that. I'm going to say one word to you, Israel. Because you can have an Israeli passport and never have seen Israel. You from Brooklyn or L.A. or Wales or wherever. No problem. Actually, huge problem as it relates to settler colonialism, which is what Ethelmina was talking about and SNCC was talking about and people continue to talk about. But guess what? I'm going to get me two passports to the United States of Africa. That don't exist. Okay, well, neither did damn England. What are we talking about here? The life of Ethel Miner is an example of how you ain't got to make a whole lot of noise. Do your work, be of service, and keep it moving, and you'll find that that will be a life of service. And that is a governance structure life. Who are we to each other? So I'm going to end with that right now, Prof, with our sister. Oh, look, look, you found it! Oh, yeah, that's the, hey, look, seriously, the SNCC legacy, that's where y'all want to go. That's the old, that's the SNCC old heads right there. Oh, that's beautiful! She got that afro right, didn't she? <laughs>
I was Google searching and there's another Ethel Miner spelled the exact same way who was the president of the San Antonio branch of the NAACP, but nothing, Yes. nothing on this woman. How about two Ethel Miners? I'm like, so I immediately typed, I was like, Ahmad, we need this as a you should know um, because this is the only place where we're going to get this extensive uh, breakdown of this incredible human being who I believe might have been canceled because she had the courage to actually speak up about something that was unjust because that's right. people have the power to shut people up that's and right. shut them out and erase them from history. But part of the reason why narrative and newbie exists is to remember, is to create this library of knowledge that will live thousands of years after you and I take our last breath. So the Ethel Miner will never be forgotten. This today, you inspired me so much because this is why we started this to reclaim people and to put them into the annals of history forever. So thank you. No, thank you. But don't don't go anywhere. I promise this is 30 seconds. This is why we have this because somebody in here right now, whether it's live or later, you know Ethel Miner. We we're not relying on this is no the university is out of our conversation. We build these institutions. Ethel Minor story is gonna be told by us. I know some people I'm gonna go and sit with and listen to to get that, but more importantly, some of y'all knew her because she lived in uh, assisted living facilities in the Chicago area. She was in Atlanta, she was out in and out of New York, she was in Africa. It's some kind of Africans know Ethel Minor, Prof. Colombians. Colombians, y'all, for real. We're talking about black brown unity. Ethel Miner done told y'all what to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, that's why we have this space. This is global. We're not waiting on nobody. We don't want nobody to. This is our story to tell. I'm sorry, I just had to say No, that. no, this is the very thing what yes. we are touching on right now. This is the very thing that they do not want to happen. Right. And this is the very thing that must happen. Yes. All of this nonsense that keeps us here, even in, even in here. Yes. Men, women, this and that, all of that, y'all, come on, come on. It's too. First of all, it's too easy. The tee up is right there. It's too easy for us to get everything that everybody claims they want. But I suspect, Doctor Carr, people don't really want it. They just like to bitch about wanting it. I don't think they really want it. Because if they really wanted it, we wouldn't be sitting here, 136 episodes, still having to beat this gong to wake people up. They would have just immediately drank that. It's like, oh, this is delicious. Okay, let's go. Let's do something else. No, they, they I don't think they really want freedom. I think well, we, we, we've been, we've been trained to think we can't win. I always say, that's why I say all the time, you know, people don't think we can win, so they start making deals. That's mm. why I, when I hear when I hear Killer Mike say that about uh, uh, Kemp, I'm not mad at Killer Mike. Do you think, because you don't think we can win on our terms? You afraid of these people. I mean, the, one of the things I loved about Alpha Minor, and again, I only met her in passing after that, because after that, Prof, I wish you could have heard the people because they because she don't she didn't come around. So they was like, oh, that's I was it was crazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, but she was so quiet. Oh yeah, see, and she had a su- southern accent. So I, I just I didn't mean for that to happen. And everybody started laughing. So I'm just saying, you know, that is what we have to be able to be for each other because that's what lets us know we can win. We can win. But I don't think people think we can win. And then certainly it's like somebody like Council Chair Hernandez, uh, Council uh, Chair Martinez, you think 
somehow you doing for our people because you came in the room, you scare these people. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. But that's because they, they forgot. They have no momentum of memory. They don't know who no. they are. They don't know the power. They don't know any of the things. So you you operate in your helplessness. Or, you know, as as Joy DeGruy would say, you know, that learned that 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 learned helplessness where, where it paralyzes you to even think about the possibilities instead of the abundance and the power and all of that is flowing through our DNA epigenetically. Yes. We we don't tap into that. We tap into the lash. Yes. But not in a way that allows us to even break free from that. I just think about the yeah. trip that Harriet Tubman and I'm sure others made because I'm sure they're nameless people. To go free people, free people, free people. We want a whole lot of people going back. No. There was not a whole lot of people that were courageous enough to go with her. Because no. what's over there? At least I'm getting a meal. Someone right. <laughs> and you know that was the, that was the talk. You already know. You know that was the talk. What? There's snakes in them. Oh, they're gonna kill, they kill you. And then, and then you get free and be like, damn, she got free. <laughs> She got free. Actually, this is the weekend around this time in 1966 when the Black Panther Party was founded. Wow. And we know that, of course, 1966, that previous summer and before when Kwame Ture and uh, and uh, what's my man, um, H. Rap Brown were in Lowndes County, Alabama, think Ethel Minor again in the Atlanta office SNCC, some of the students from the Atlanta University Center, particularly Clark College, went out there to Alabama to help organize. And there were students from the West Coast as well. And one of the students traced out the Clark College mascot, which is a panther, and said to the people in Lowndes County, Alabama, some of y'all can't read or write. These are the candidates to vote for when you see this black cat at the top, because the white people couldn't read or write either. They had a rooster, and it was the rooster versus the panther. That panther then makes it to the West Coast and becomes the symbol of the black panther part, the literal symbol of Clark Atlanta Panthers. And I'm thinking, Ethel Minor is gone. We should have asked Ethel Minor. But Jennifer Lawson and them know that story. The SNCC people know that story. SNCC, the SNCC legacy that you pulled up, that is the website to consult. They've just launched now. They got a digital platform. Duke has one. It's got a lot of information. You'll probably find some stuff. But the SNCC legacy, that's Clint, that's Cox and them. That's uh, Karen Spellman and them, who was in Atlanta at the time. Her husband, A.B., all them. Oh, I should mention Charles Sherrod, who made transition, too, a couple few days ago. That was, of course, Shirley Sherrod's husband in wow. Albany, Georgia. Another SNCC here who's just another legend. But these stories are ours to tell, Prof. I can imagine... You freed up to just be a journalist with a bevy of journalists. Say, you know That's why, you know, um, people like, oh, radio. No, Trojan horses and means to an end. That's not the end. No question. You know, radio is cute. It's nice. You know, all of that. No, there, there's a much bigger, 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 bigger plan. No question. And everybody that has picked up a brick to come into Nubia understand what the work is. It's a lot bigger than just community. Yes. This is about the total freedom forever. Like forever. No going back. I'm tired of the stops and the starts and the stops. And we got a little bit of this and it's back and the backsliding. And then we, no, let's get there. Let's, let's get, get there. And let's, let's wait for 2000 years. And maybe, you know, we'll get back and comfortable and, and somebody will, you know, you know, the rinse and repeat. Cause that's what cycles are, but let's get back there. Let's get back there. And people, and we may, and we're going to stumble. I mean, somebody just mentioned in the chat. Thank you. Yes. The anniversary of the million man March just passed. I was there 
I know it wasn't just men. Rosa Parks spoke at the Million Man March. Dorothy Height spoke at the Million Man March. Yes, there are all kind of flaws, all kind of things. Epa Minor went from the Nation of Islam straight through to the revolutionary Pan-Africanists. I mean, we don't stay in the same place, but yes, let's keep each other going and move together. Yes, yes. Yes. Anyway. Yes, all right. <laughs> yes rest, take a nap. Appreciate yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. Go, right. go, go, nap, love bitch. you. Love, you. Love, love everybody in Nubia. I'll see y'all. With Dr. Senyata, yes, and we'll, uh, see you in them Nubian streets. Dr. I'm gonna get some more of this. Thank you, <laughs> love you. See love you. you. All right, bye bye, y'all.